Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Scott Pilgrim versus the world. You know this one girl with hair like this? Yes, that's Ramona Flowers. She's out of your league. You know her? Tell me now. She just moved here. Got a job at Amazon. I have to order something really cool. Scott, are you waiting for the package you just ordered? Maybe. Scott Pilgrim? Hi, I was thinking about asking you out, but then I realized how stupid that would be. That's okay. You should just sign for this, all right? So do you want to go out sometime? I say yes, we sign for your damn package. So yeah, eight o'clock? Come to this Battle of the Bands thing. You have a band? Yeah, we're terrible. One, two, three, four! Mr. Pilgrim! I'm Ramona's first evil ex-boyfriend. What? Wait, we're fighting over Ramona? Didn't you get my email explaining the situation? I skimmed it. Mm-mm. What was that all about? If we're gonna date, you may have to defeat my seven evil exes. So what you're saying is we are dating? I guess. Does that mean we can make out? Sure. Scott Pilgrim! Prepare to feel the wrath of the League of Evil Exes. Ramona dated twins. At the same time. If you want something bad, you have to fight for it. Step up your game, Scott. Combo! Break out the L word. Lesbian? The other L word. Lesbians? By the way, that's my least favorite line in the whole movie. Especially when he simpers, I'm in lesbians with you. Getting a life. You want to fight me for her? Why on earth would you want to do that? Because I'm in love with her. Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Maybe next time we don't date the girl with 11 evil ex-boyfriends. Seven. Oh, that's not that bad. This is another commissioned show, and this one was thanks to Jason Ronson. While we love Edgar Wright's Cornetto trilogy and do plan on doing them sometime, this one might have waited a while longer, so you guys get to hear it with supreme gusto from us, thanks to Jason. And the moment I mentioned Scott Pilgrim vs. the World on Twitter, there was a flurry of activity which immediately formulated itself into a cacophony of recommendations that we read the books. Because you see, folks who have only seen the film, and folks who haven't seen the film, this is for you guys and your benefit, fans of Scott Pilgrim's books have a special fervour we normally expect from fans of anime and Doctor Who. Now before I go on, let me make plain that it is okay to like this movie. Now that goes double for you book fans out there. It's okay to like Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. It's also okay to love the books, with a passion usually reserved for religious zealots speaking in tongues. But we are going to say a bunch of things on this show that some fans won't want to hear, so if that's you, maybe skip this episode. If you only want us to say, for something like three hours, uh, while discussing them in supreme detail, that the books are better, then this definitely isn't for you. We have with us Alex Maskell as a fact-checker and longtime fan of the series. Hopefully, as Neil did with our Doctor Who show, he can steer us right through the monochrome waters of uncharted book territory. Hello, Alex. Hi, thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming on. 
Right, now you may have heard me say no anime a few times on this show. Once or twice. Once or twice. On this show, before. Or you may have seen that on Twitter, and I was going to wait until we covered an anime film to talk about this, but that's kind of a confusing message. You know, here on this anime podcast, I'm going to explain why I always say no anime. No anime. anime. Uh, and, and also that Ghost in the Shell, which is the movie I was waiting for this for, uh, was nowhere near interesting enough to cover right now, although I did do a movie a day on it, so you can check that out if you want to check out my thoughts on Ghost in the Shell. So, That's the remake, not the original. Yeah, so you're going to get the reason why right here on Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, which is effectively a live-action anime. Why I say no anime. And this applies to many, many anime fans... Hashtag not all anime fans, but many enough of you to make it feel like all of you. So I'm going to say they, meaning the collective portion of anime fans that this applies to. And I'm going to try to do this without alienating thousands of people. That is not my intention. Good luck. <laughs> okay, wish me luck, folks. <clears throat> Sharon and I used to quite like anime. We watched all of Cowboy Bebop, most of Mobile Suit Gundam, Escaflone, and Trigun, and some episodes of Pokemon, and some of Death Note, and a few of Attack on Titan. We also, over the years, watched most of the Ghibli films, Akira, Ghost in the Shell, Ghost in the Shell Innocence, Street Fighter 2, Project Aiko, Vampire Hunter D, Perfect Blue, Ninja Scroll, Wicked City, Devil Man, although I haven't seen that, Sharon has. You, you're not, not missing, missing anything. <laughs> You've seen Wicked City, it's just that okay. for two hours. Quite like Wicked City. Orotsuki Doji, Legend of the Overfiend. Orotsuki Doji 2, Legend of the Demon Womb. The Professional Golgo Fist of the North Star. The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, Summer Wars, and Steam Boy. So that's a lot of classics. Some of the weird, disgusting, rape-filled ones. A lot of the quirky ones. A lot of the ultra-violent ones. A lot of the lovely ones. A load with great stories and what we feel are most of the best anime movies and series. But we kind of stopped because we got bored. It was a lot of the same stuff over and over again with tropes that annoyed rather than delighted us. So whenever someone would recommend an anime and or ask if we were going to cover One Piece or Naruto, I would always give a non-committal, yeah, maybe sometime, because if you say yes, they want to know when. They then also start telling you what else you need to watch that's similar. But if you say no, they ask why not. Then they start suggesting anime you might like instead. It's like, oh, if you're tired of anime, here's the anime you want. You want to watch One Piece. And I get bombarded with recommendations and questions as to why I haven't watched the series or movie. And if I say no anime, which has become my default response in recent years for the above reason, I then have to explain everything I've just said because they can't accept that as a flat rule... No anime are the words I live by, often taking it as a personal offence or my dismissal of an entire culture. I'm not dismissing Japan, I'm just not that interested in watching a lot more anime. And that does not mean that there is a magic show or movie out there that's going to change my mind. It's this challenge factor, like a personal task to set me straight, which is particular to only certain kinds of fans. Like, I'm a safe that could be cracked if only I'd spend the time to watch the entirety of Dragon Ball Z. Those who are into anime will just have snorted with laughter because they know just how many series of Dragon Ball Z there have been. Lots. And how many episodes per series. Lots. And how many episodes it takes just to carry one fight to its conclusion. Lots. 
and how many dozens and indeed hundreds of hours of our lives that represents. Ultimately, I cannot fault anime fans for their passion. That is a love of art and entertainment that I heartily applaud. You do you and have the best time while you're doing it. But Sharon and I don't care, and that will never change. We have incredibly finite time to spend. It's a currency, folks. Time is a currency, and we spend it in a variety of ways. We usually spend that time doing things that we know will engage us. Even watching a rubbish movie is often really worthwhile for the fun you can mine from it. You know, I've, I complain all the time about the movies I, that I watch on Twitter and when I do my movie a day, and but that's... It's oddly therapeutic to be able to do that, and I will gladly include a bunch of anime films in that list if only every anime fan in the entire world agreed to not take that as a cue to suggest more and better anime! <sighs> Basically, I tend to get burned out covering creative works of substance, as well as the constant creation of works of substance of my own. And when I'm done working for the day, I need to unwind, and anime does the opposite. It winds me up. This happens with a lot of, but not all, Doctor Who fans as well. If you like the 8th Doctor, we don't, you should try the audiobooks for further adventures. We won't. And with Scott Pilgrim, I went from fans insisting the books were better than the film, which led me to eventually say, yeah, uh, maybe I'll read the first one, to no, you have to read all of them. The first ones aren't very good. It's the last ones that are great. You now have to, suddenly, there's a whole extra show worth of research and material, not to mention expense of both time and money, bolted onto this show. The very word fan comes from a shortening of fancier, which is a quaint Victorian term for liking something a whole lot. But it also stems from fanatic. Anime fans, it's okay to love anime, but the intensity of a lot of you scares people. And the association of anime with some of the worst parts of the internet and an endlessly mutating subset of toxic masculinity does not help your cause. In other words, anime was niche 20 years ago and has since become notorious. That, in the grander scheme of things, is not good for a lot of people. And most anime fans out there already know this. I'm just, I'm telling you what you already know, and I apologize for that. And I really am trying not to alienate you. But just like the word gamer, there is a hell of a lot to take on board when you tie your personality and your identity to a medium. You don't get to choose to have only the good. The best fans of anime I know love a whole bunch of different anime, as well as regular movies, TV, comics, video games, music, regular books, and hundreds of other things. They are never, or rarely, scary. I count all of our listeners who are fans of anime among this group, because otherwise you wouldn't listen to our show, because if you were you only into anime... the first time we said no anime. <laughs> you, or, 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 like, you'd have gone, well, this is not an anime podcast. <laughs> and this why would I even listen to me. an anime podcast when I could be watching anime? <laughs> But some people have in the past been quite naggy about it, and you all deserve a better answer than simply, no anime! So, from now on, when I say no anime in future, what I really mean is, maybe some anime. But don't bug me about it, or that will go straight back to no anime. I know exactly what we're going to review, and nobody can positively influence this short list, only negatively. So, wink wink, no anime on School of Movies.
Okay, so Scott Pilgrim began as a graphic series of graphic novels written by Brian Lee O'Malley, and it's uh, six digest-sized black and white volumes released between August 2004 and July 2010 by Portland-based independent comics book publisher Oni Press. They were released in colour a few years after the movie. So this is not a series that ran and ran. It's just six books, and the last was finished as the movie was about to be released, to the point where... Brian took some of the elements of the film and worked them into his ending. Back in 04, 2004, when it was first pitched to Edgar Wright after he'd released Shaun of the Dead, he took six years to get round to making it, shooting hot fuzz in between. But he did say that uh, him and Naira Park immediately thought, wow, Michael Sarah, Michael Sarah would be a really great Scott Pilgrim. So it's, it's mm. like, you know, that, that was pretty much a done deal from the uh, word go. He was just too young at the time. But then they uh, waited for a few years, dilly-dallied about. And then, I mean, it, it kind of, it's good that they didn't just do like the first three and then hope that there'd be another th- you know another Scott because we'd never have got the second half mm. so it's actually quite good that it came out around about the time of the ending of the comic series uh, the movie differs from the books in ways that we will go into enough to enlighten those who haven't read them but probably nowhere near enough detail for the book fans if you guys want to club together when we're done and commission a six book show we're happy to go in there and read them but you might find that we cover the key ele- events in satisfactory fashion here anyway. I've read the first two books. Sharon's read some of the first book. Nope. It, no, no, no. Hang on. It took me half an hour to yeah. read half of the first book. So that's an hour a book. So that's six hours for the whole series for me. Ooh. Plus. I mean, we've, we've put, I, I put a hell of a lot of hours into watching all the extras and doing a lot of research into the, this, mm. uh, this movie as well. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think we'll pretty much nail it. Like, you know, the, the only people who would want to talk about more book-related stuff would be f- big fans of the books. Mm. So I mean, like, we've got Alex here, and he can maybe, like, sort of, you know, fill you guys yeah. in on stuff that we're a bit hazy on. Um, now, it's going to be very easy to get lost with the amount of detail, that's overt and hidden detail, the deluge of characters and events. So we're going to keep this sectional and based around bullet-pointed lists rather than exhaustively trawling through the whole saga. So, like, we're not going to stop with minute one and, like, every single thing that's crammed into that first minute because they go by so fast, it would take, like, you know, you know we normally spend longer than the film itself talking about the film. This, like, in in this case, there's so much crammed in there, we'd spend several hours, like, six, six hours talking about every single little bleep, bloop. Those podcasts exist. They're called the director's commentaries. Yeah, there's a lot of them, and they go into a lot of detail. Yeah, just get the uh, the DVD and the the Blu-ray, uh, preferably the Blu-ray actually, because this looks great, and um, and just you know trawl through all of those. Edgar Wright is extremely fun to listen to, and he's chatting away with um, uh, Brian O'Malley as well. And I was asking him lots of questions, like um, so so Brian, what was your reason to have a, a lesbian relationship as one of the uh, seven um, evil exes? And he went <laughs> cliche. <laughs> okay, well, I'm glad that much thought went into it. Good, thanks, Brian. As in, he included it because it was a cliche. Yeah, like, well, I don't know. You've got to include one. Oh, that's okay. the level of thought that went into it. Right. So, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. This is what I mean about like folks who are like, we're not going to be massively kind to this film. So, like, strap in, folks, if you're fans. Okay.
So we'll start with the key characters. I would posit that in the film, the main three characters, as in the three characters who actually develop over the course of the uh, the two, nearly two-hour film, are Scott, Ramona, and Knives. That be uh, accurate? Uh, yeah, definitely. Okay. I, I would have said that Ramona, uh, that uh, Knives would have been support, or that it's just Scott as the lead character. But I actually, I think that. That there there are changes going on for all three of them. The fact that the ending could go one way or the other suggests that there there was potential for change. Mm, yeah, I I would concur with that. Mm. I would personally go one step further, and I will elaborate on this a little bit later once we get into like the the structure of the story. Um, basically, the way I see it, this is not Scott's story. Mm -hmm. This is Ramona's story, mm -hmm. but Scott thinks it is his story. Mm -hmm. Someone best summed up Napoleon Dynamite by saying, if you focus on the fact that it's not actually a film about Napoleon, it's a film about everyone around him, it becomes a less irritating film. Mm. That kind of works with Scott I, Pilgrim I would as well. say exactly the same thing about this. But yeah, I, I think, especially having seen the alternate ending, to me this is more about Ramona and how she progresses. Mm. But because... Scott has a tendency to, and, and this really struck me when I started reading um, volume one of the books, any time he's talking about himself and somebody else tries to change the subject, he pulls it back to him again. Mm. Okay, so let's just go in for the kill straight away. I fucking hate Scott himself. He is a little <laughs> shit. I cannot stand this whining little bitch on screen and in the comics. There you go, folks. Now, I could go and read all the comics, and I'm sure that would change my mind, but I hate this little toe rag. I get that the whole point is that he, pro that, that he progresses to being slightly less of a colossal douche. But the point is that all he is at the end is slightly less of a colossal douche. Like, you started with this monster... That is also a boring, annoying monster. I was going to say, he's not that much of a monster in the sense that he is pretty innocuous. He is relatively harmless okay. in the grand scheme of things. The bland version of monster. <laughs> a, a beige behemoth. <laughs> oh, I mean, you're, I, I don't think you're supposed to like Scott. No. I think he's supposed to be annoying. But I, 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 I think yes. fans of the books would say, mm. you are supposed to like Scott a bit more. He's flawed. He's a flawed character. You know, he does. He makes mistakes. He treat, takes people for granted. Um, but here's the thing, folks, and this is the fundamental flaw in making this film in 2010. It's going to have its, its major appeal to 22-year-olds. But by the time the film came out, the 22-year-olds who started reading the book have grown 28. six years older. And at 28, their priorities have changed somewhat. So Ooh. while they grew the fuck up a lot faster than Scott, he's still just learning by the end. Oh, maybe I should be less of a cock end. That's a meta implication for Kim's first line. What's she say? She says, what are you, like 28 now? Yeah. And he says, no, I'm 22. Nice. Oh, good <laughs> You were 22 when we started. Now you're 28. Nice. <laughs> If your life had a face, I would punch it. Um, so, so okay, right. And this is actually going to uh, come into the uh, later where I, where I ask the question of all of us: Why did this film tank? Because it did. It, it not only didn't make its money back; it made somewhat short of its money, mm. like quite a long I way. Think it, it was about three quarters, wasn't it? Yeah. 
to the point that would uh, it, it's bad for Edgar Wright's career. In you know, it's bad. It's bad for the I would say it's bad for the careers of everyone involved. But they've all gone off and done fantastic things. Oh, it's so bad for Chris Evans' career. He was like, I'll be in Scott Pilgrim, and then just two years later, he's Captain America. <laughs> Um, I mean, pretty much everyone uh, in this cast mm. like went on to do like much bigger things. I mean, Brie Larson, this was like an earlier like big role for her. Mm. Um, you know, a, a lot of them have done really well. So it it seems to have only really taken a chunk out of Edgar Wright's cachet in Hollywood. Yeah, mm. and I think, he, in fairness, he what happened over Ant Man probably did that more yeah. than this. Yeah, that I mean, that the whole pulling out of movies, especially late in the days, is, is really difficult. I mean, for, I, ha- to, I to have absolutely no doubt that he had his reasons. Mm. He is a professional at the end of the day. But it's a triple whammy of box office bomb. Mm. Then the world's end did not delight people, even though it does have its appeal once you really scratch below the surface. You have to really, but it's not. It's not the measure of Hot Fuzz and, and Sean of the dead it didn't delight people like those two films did and then pulling out of ant-man he's gonna have to like he he needs another solid gold hit Mm. now it'll be interesting to see what happens with baby driver yeah oh i'm looking forward to that okay yeah i hope that that's really really good um i've got to say i saw the trailer for that recently and i just look like it looks like a zany version of drive (laughs) i think that's the point (laughs) baby drive yeah um, I'm like I've seen this film, but with very different colours. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Oh, and by the way, kid, you're going to grow up to be Ryan Gosling. Have fun. <laughs> oh, speaking of which, oh, while we I was should doing, all be so lucky. Well, indeed. While I was doing the um, research for Scott Pilgrim, I found the trailer for Drive because they were showing like the trailer for Scott Pilgrim is actually fairly accurate to what happens in the movie. It's tonally on point, which means they weren't mismarketing it. Um, but the trailer for Drive is like. <laughs> Do you have any idea there'd be a second car? You said there'd be another car to hold us up. Whose money do I have? I'm gonna tell you something. Anybody finds out we're both dead. And where's this real is not drivers like Fast and Furious? Wasn't there someone who actually walked out of the cinema because Drive wasn't like Fast and Furious? At least like, I one. think I remember that I would, getting reported. Yeah, I would imagine quite a few people. Man, I thought this was going to be as good as Need for Speed, but it's not. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, so um, so Scott P- P- Pilgrim's a little knob-end. But um, we, we were 30 when we would have first seen it. Maybe 31, because we didn't see it at the cinema. We saw it uh, on DVD. Mm. When you're 30... Watching twenty-two-year-olds flail about, and and uh, you know, okay, you're gonna have to dump this girl, or you're gonna have to let this girl go because she's gonna be hurt, especially if you're cheating behind behind her back with this other girl. And Scott's response is, "But it's hard." That's supposed to be funny, and it's supposed to make you want to slap him, but it made me want to murder him with my fists. That's a paddling. <laughs> I was just like, you abominable little shit. Why am I watching your story? At any point, if the film had gone, right, that's enough of you, Scott. Now we're going to have Ramona's story. And this is her from now. If it had been like an anthology, like what a third of the way through Scott Pilgrim, that's enough out of you. And then it's Ramona. And then at the end, it's Knives. And... Because Ramona and Knives are infinitely more interesting than Scott. And as I understand it, Alex, am I right in thinking that as the the uh, novels continue, there is more focus on the other characters? Oh, yeah. That's the thing. In the uh, uh, novels, there's a lot more diverging... For, oh, sorry. Okay, you're going to have to set... Call, right. 
Right. Uh, yes, this is going to get confusing. Call I him Maskill. Uh, yeah, it, it eventually goes on to be much more of an ensemble piece, and it is, it that is to its benefit. I also, I also do think that uh, Scott's arc has a little more coherence in its evolution uh, in the books than the film, so it's much less of a like slight move forward to being slightly less of a prick. Uh, so that also makes a difference, but yes, it takes on much more of a uh, like an ensemble cast thing. Also, the advantage of a six-volume <clears throat> novel series over a two-hour movie is that there's. I think one of the things that feels a little bit jarring about Scott's progression is that it's relatively sudden. It does. You don't exactly see it coming gradually. You can see kind of the the. Because one one of the things I actually really really like about this film is is the fact that if you shift your attention from Scott to everybody around him, they're actually really pretty cool people, and they care about him and they want to. For God knows what reason. Hmm. <clears throat> Toronto's a fairly small place. I don't know. <laughs> you know, once you yeah, their options are very limited. Yeah, maybe so. But um, but I think one of the things that I actually like about it is that you you do kind of have this sense of he's learning that you can't have a relationship in a void. Ultimately, everything that you do is going to impact on the people around you. And everybody in his life gets involved with this relationship, which when you're in your early 20s can feel quite invasive because you're like, this is the first time I've had a serious relationship or, you know, maybe the second time. I want to be able to just get on with it. And yet friends, family, various people around you are constantly sticking their oars in. Now, Going back to this idea of we saw this when we were in our early, in my 30s. case, pushing mid-30s, hmm. um, I think there's kind of a bit of a parallel there with the scene where um, Scott and Knives are in the library, and he says, libraries remind me of grade school, and she kind of giggles and says, oh, that must feel like a really long time ago for you. That was kind of what the early 20s felt like to me when I was watching it. So it wasn't... I, th I think there was an element of, dear God, please don't tell me I was that um, insular, self-involved, unable to see anybody else's perspective when I was in my early 20s. But I, I think to some degree I probably was. I mean, also, Scott does not have the mentality of someone in his early 20s. He has the mentality of someone in his teenage years, which is why he's, like, gravitating towards knives. It's because she's his, like, emotional development peer. So, you know, even by those standards, he's kind of behind. I would put knives somewhere around 15, 16, and Scott somewhere around 12, which, by the way, makes um, Ramona, who... Seems around about 28, and I don't think ever has her actual age properly declared in the movie. Um, it makes the scene where she brings him back, gives him tea, and then seduces him um, really creepy because it's like a 28 year old woman luring a child who obviously a horny child, but a horny child into her house with promises of tea, like the white witch. <laughs> and she got Turkish delight in the back room as well. I. Originally, I don't think I was particularly fussed about um, uh, Mary... Elizabeth Winstead. Elizabeth Winstead. For some reason, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantono stuck in my head. <laughs> I wasn't massively fussed about Mary Elizabeth Winstead. She was in uh, Death Proof, where she didn't do much. She was in Die Hard, where she didn't do much. Die Hard 4, as uh, Lucy McLean. And um, 
she never really registered. And then Ten Cloverfield Lane came out last year. And suddenly I really like Mary Elizabeth Winstead. She is superb in that. And yeah, absolutely. When she has good stuff to do, she can pull out some really fascinating performances. And uh, I, I really, of the, all the characters in this, I like Ramona the best. Possibly because she remains silent and is thought a fool rather than opening her mouth and removing all doubt, which Scott does the exact opposite of the whole way through the film. Yeah, well, she's ultimately, she's become an observer. Because mm. of everything that she's had happen in her life... She's gone through all of the, um, you know, here's all the exciting, in inverted commas, because when people say exciting, they mean, oh, my God, oh, my God, we're all going to die. All the exciting things have already happened. Mm. And at the moment, she's trying to calm down from all of that. So, you know, standing in the back corner, just watching everything go on around her is kind of her thing, which for me, that I can very much identify with that. So, again, I think that's I was drawn to Ramona as a character as well in terms of and that's that's possibly why I see this as her story, because that's the way I'm reading it. But also, I can't understand why she finds Scott even vaguely attractive. I can completely understand why she <laughs> find her hypnotic. She's kind of like a manic pixie dream girl in that she's quirky, but she's also very dour. So she doesn't. She's not really manic, is she? No, and also she's very. Actually... She's actually pretty stable. Yeah, she resists Scott's attempts to make her his um, muse, mm. at least initially. In the book, she's much more affectionate. Mm. I think that uh, the the Manic Pixie Dream Girl thing gets thrown around a lot, largely, I think, because at the time uh, she was in a film with Michael Sarah, and that's what the women in films with Michael Sarah were like at the time. Um, but when I think about the things that I think of when I think of the term Manic Pixie Dream Girl, mm. I think of, like, Quirky, where I, I find her to be probably the most down to earth person mm. in the like in the cast. Maybe like dyeing her hair is the quirk, but yeah. other than that, she seems fairly straightforward. I also think she of, has lots of different types of tea. That's a it's it's not exactly a punishable yeah, but, offense. <laughs> no, knowing knowing girls my age, that's actually not like I know I genuinely know girls like that. Uh, but mm. the other one is like a lack of internal life and a like uh their root in the story is in complimenting the main character mm. and in kind of being pliant to his needs whereas Ramona is pretty unimpressed by Scott all of the time i get that she likes him for some reason but i don't think she respects him very much and mm-hmm. it like for a brief period she leaves him for another guy so i I never understood why the manic pixie dream girl tag fits her certainly in this film I think she's meant to look like one. I think that's basically how it's it's set up. I mean, you mentioned about um, uh, Brian O'Malley saying that the why the lesbian relationship because it's a cliche. There's a lot in this film which is there, I suspect, because it's a cliche. Um, there are tropes, there are stereotypes that, if you want to take them as entirely serious and done without consideration, border on lazy um examples uh matthew patel is is sort of very uses stereotypical bollywood type tropes um it's celebrating bollywood (laughs) um (laughs) uh roxy 
and the the fact that this was a bicurious phase that uh, Ramona had that gets referred to as the sexy phase. You can imagine how that one went down. But again, I think to a point, this is cliche for cliche's sake. It's it's stereotyped for a reason. There's a very um, sort of almost fairy tale feel to the story in the sense that it is oversimplified, and I. Th- think that's on purpose it's it's very brightly colored it's very um rough cut blocks in terms of how it's presented the artwork in the novels um is is deliberately cartoonified and and there's a name for it isn't there in anime no 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 manga no Chibi? Chibi. Chibi. Chibi, yeah. <clears throat> it was most inspired by Ran Mahath. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at the fact that you, you have a character who introduces himself by saying that he's, he's actually 23 in the book, um, 22 in the movie. He but, starts 22 and then turns 23. It takes place over a year rather than a week. Oh, okay, That's, I may have read that wrong. I'm the, sure it's he later says on, he's starts 23, ends up 24. Oh, okay. Well. Okay. Um, maybe they made him a year younger because um, they were like, no one's going to believe Michael Cera's 23, not in a million years. His chin um, hasn't even descended yet. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> but the, the, um, that, that kind of youthified style, if you like, I think is, is there to portray the fact that here is somebody who is meant to be an adult and can't function in the adult world and certainly can't manage adult relationships. Everybody in that book looks like they're about 10. Yeah. Both Sharon and I observed privately, we were doing that thing where we're not comparing notes so so that we can surprise each other with things. Um, Both of us observed privately that this is like peanuts. Where are all the adults? Mm -hmm. But also you've got character parallels in this mm-hmm. Scott is blatantly Charlie Brown again mm. everything focuses around da, him da, even da, though it's not specifically da, da. his story <laughs> George Michael meanwhile had just been broken up with by his first girlfriend and was on his way home um, Julie is Lucy mm-hmm. um, Stacy is Sally mm-hmm. um, I would argue Wallace is Linus because it's he's like, always under that blanket he is always under the blanket <laughs> and he actually has things more together than anybody else around him but nobody will nobody can see that fact mm-hmm. um, and um, that makes Ramona the little redhead girl which for about five minutes she actually is yeah little pink haired girl mm. <clears throat> um, but like so just to journey back a little bit to what I was saying about the, the difference between, like... Okay, so you're watching this film age 30, and you're looking at 22-year-olds saying, Scott Pilgrim's dating a school, a high school girl, and that becomes the central point of contention at the beginning of the film. And you are, as a 30-year-old, trying to locate the fucks that you could possibly give about this fact. You just, like, your natural reaction is, that's a bit skeezy, don't do that. End of story. Oh, it's still going on. Okay, carry on. And it becomes like the central tenet of the movie. Like the the difference between 17 and 22 is like quite a lot when you're that young. But when you're a bit older, you're like, you young people, I don't care. Sort it out yourselves. But watching it is boring. But the problem again, if you want to keep layering it on, is that while 22 year olds would be able to relate to what's going on, you won't get a lot of the pop culture references unless you're at least 32, because you had to have had a snes when you were a kid. (laughs) There's so many things which are very age-specific because... um, It was written in 2004. It was written in 2004 by a guy who was about 25 
at the time, looking back on him himself three years previously, age 22, and then by the time it was released in uh, six years later, the, the last book, he couldn't do it anymore. He got sick of it. He, he recalls the words of Hergé, who said, if I ever do Tintin again, shoot me in the fucking face, or something to that uh, effect. <laughs> Basically, um, he, he couldn't find Tintin in him anymore. Uh, and basically, uh, Brian O'Malley grew out of Scott Pilgrim. Mm. And it, it, he's not in there anymore because we are talking about a grown adult. It's really difficult to get adults to give that much of a shit about things that kids are doing or kids to give anything of a shit to what old, old adults liked when they were kids. So, what you're so automatically, is- to begin with, you're fighting this uphill Sisyphean battle of trying to find an audience, Edgar Wright. <laughs> So so by the end then, Brian O'Malley was basically the Beastie Boys on stage, mid-90s, having people shriek at them, do fight for your right to party. And other kids, the kids in the audience going, wanna. I don't know what fight for your right to party is, do something from your latest album. <laughs> oh, <clears throat> or something. Uh, Edgar Wright specifically shaved his beard before he started this. Do you know why? Because he wanted to feel what it was like to be 22 again? Pretty much. He was surrounded by young people. He didn't want them to think he was some bearded old creep telling them how to love each other. Because <laughs> it's, it's, there is, like, the Scott Pilgrim books, there's a lot of extensive shipping in there. And we only get to see some of it, but... Um, mm. And by extensive shipping, we mean Scott knobs pretty much every girl in mm. this movie. I mean, well, knob is an exaggeration, but they are all described as his girlfriend or his ex-girlfriend or some kind of romantic entanglement has gone on. Honestly, it feels like this would probably be better off as a, a, an ongoing TV series, like a, a Dawson's Riverboat kids sleeping in each other's beds. Um, <laughs> okay, now you sound like a bearded old man. I am a bearded old man! Look at this beard! <laughs> but but again, that, that's the point. This, uh, this came out the same week as The Expendables, and it was fifth in the queue of success for that week. The Expendables got all the men. All the older men and a lot of the younger men. Did they also drag in their kids? Yeah, because it's... Uh, oh, no, actually, that, that first one was an R. The second oh, okay. was the PG-13. Oh, the right, third okay. was the PG-13? Yeah. Um, the first two, I think, were, were R's. So you got all the men. And then Eat, Pray, Love was out at the same time, so you got all the women there. Well, not all the women. That didn't do very well either. Did it not? I don't think so. Are you sure? You can check, but... Well, uh, we, we do like to fact check here, so hang on a second. I assume all the women were being forced to go and watch The Expendables. <laughs> <sighs> we'll watch Eat, Pray, Love okay. next oh, week. Oh, I stand corrected. No. Eat, Pray, Love did quite well. Cost 60 million, made 204 million. That's, that's the kind of figures people like. Yeah, but I don't think Eat, Pray, Love was getting the Scott Pilgrim dollars. Okay. Uh, the other guys came What's out What Scott Pilgrim dollars... Scott Pilgrim dollars is basically if you rip the third of a dollar off and then you keep hold of that stub, that's that's Scott Pilgrim dollars. Um, the other guys, that's uh, couples and uh, younger kids who are looking for a comedy, just a comedy with Will Ferrell and Marky Mark. Never seen it. And uh, Inception at number four for slow coaches because it had been out for about six weeks. It still did better than Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> Basically, everyone was like, I'm going to go and see this Inception. Someone referred to Inception as being uh, a proof that audiences were absolutely fine being given, you know, plot-heavy movies. That is not a plot-heavy movie. It is a concept-heavy movie. They explain the concept to you throughout the two-hour running time. There is virtually no plot in Inception. Mm. But even six-week-old Inception did better than Scott Pilgrim. Um uh, 
Because as I said, young kids were like, what's that? It looks like it's all sort of like 8-bit graphics and stuff. And I don't know. Only they didn't say 8-bit because they don't know what 8-bit looks like. Just all graphics. So kids weren't going to see it. And, um, you know, I was was reading various articles on uh, why it wasn't doing well. Geeks don't like being pigeonholed. You can't point to Scott Pilgrim and go, you're a geek, you're like that. I'm not that kind of geek, you know, in, in, you know a lot of the time. People are, I'm, I like video games, but not those video games. Or, you know, I, I like Call of Duty. I'm a Call of Duty geek. I don't know what I'm talking about there. I don't want to pigeonhole geeks, but it's either also, way. It's also not just geeks. It's a specific thing that I don't think had quite risen up yet, where mm. they're not just geeks. They're also, like, in bands and broken social scene and Becker on the soundtrack. It's the hipster geek as well, yeah. which is... Something that's kind of taken over what the geek is now, but at the time that was a very new thing, and it didn't have like a solid base. I can see certainly like general geek audiences as they existed at the time being alienated from elements of this. Mm. That's actually not a bad point. That everything does feel slightly retro, but you don't notice because they're in Canada. And mm. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, the ideal person to watch this would be someone who's still in the band they were they started when they were 22, or maybe in high school, uh, because um, well, I, I believe it might uh, make them experience the dark night of the soul watching this. But uh, mm. the um, there is a lot of kind of band geek stuff which doesn't necessarily correspond with the Super Nintendo. Mm. I think the other thing it felt a bit like a bit odd for me mm. was that it's very small town you've got this group of people some of whom know each other from high school some of pe- some of who know each other from college mm. they're all still hanging around together they all still know each other um but it's way too cool to be small town mm. and and you have like uh, like even more obscure like the snes is obscure so like you'll the, the zelda theme a lot of people will know but the Clash at Demon Head is a Nintendo Entertainment System game. It is a very obscure Japanese NES game. I didn't know that. Exactly. Um, I just thought it was a really good name for a band. And you know video games a lot. <laughs> I know some video games, not that one. Well, so obviously. good luck finding any audience who are going to go, <laughs> The Clash at Demon Head, it's named after that. That is a 1% of a 1%er joke. Um, so uh, automatically, it's so quirky and it's so special that it's going to find have difficulty finding a place. Now, there was a lot of internet buzz about it at the time in 2010. I think if you released it now, you'd have more traction. Mm. With uh, just with memes being what they are now, okay. I think that Scott Pilgrim would do better than it did back then now. So what you're saying is, essentially, that Scott Pilgrim is like way ahead of its time. Not really. I'm saying that time is slow and that kids take a long time to catch up with what was hip a while back. And adults yeah. take a lot longer. Yeah, a 2010 f- adaptation of a 2004 comic would have been much worse than a 2017 film of a 2004 comic. <laughs> well, technically, it's a 2004 until 2010 comic technically the last comic came out when the film was pretty much done so it's it's actually really yeah, quite I, timely. I that's a good point it's got that x-men time stretch thing hmm. Look, watching it i will say that i wish edgar wright had done the last airbender movie 
And I also wish that... I'll go with that. ...that, like, the cast of Scott Pilgrim had been in it. Because <laughs> at least two of them are benders already. You yes. got um May Whitman. May Whitman. And um, Aubrey Plaza, who's also a waterbender. Yes, she right? is indeed, yeah. yeah. Obviously, she's in a completely different timeline, but uh, basically, the visual flair and the comedy in this are much better suited to The Last Airbender. Mm. That Having said that... M. Night Shyamalan's Scott Pilgrim vs. the World would be a nightmare. A waking nightmare starring Mark Wahlberg. It would a bit. (laughs) Bro, bro, I gotta fight the evil exes, bro. (laughs) (laughs) I'll fight him. Selfie style. Um, Edgar Wright could have made that talking to a plant scene work. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but another reason that uh, people were cited in uh, reasons why this film did not do fantastically well. People hate Michael Cera? Question mark. What's to hate? Uh, let's look at the films that came out just before that, because uh, from from him. Because um, it's interesting that the main challenge was Inception, though, because it's like okay, so people saw Judo and went, okay, we like her, him not so much. But we don't like him. They also saw Five Hundred Days of Summer, which was a similar kind of thing, and mm. they liked him, so they went to see that movie. Was he in that? I know that. Yeah, uh, he's he's, uh, he's the male lead, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Oh, right, sorry, I thought you were talking about Michael Cera. I was like, oh, no, no. <laughs> he was never in that. Okay, hang on. Uh, going back a little bit. Um, he was it was in... like Youth, Youth and Revolt and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, right? Hmm. Uh, it was in Superbad, which may have pissed off nerds. It pissed me off. I think I yeah. liked it better when we went back and watched it later. It is creepy, though. It is a bit. Basically. Uh, but that had Emma Stone, Laurie. Uh, but yeah, no, he, he. I think people were pissed off about the fact that Michael Cera basically played a slightly more sweary version of him, the version of him in Arrested Development. Um, who, by the way, he is fucking hilarious in Arrested Development. Repeatedly, because he's surrounded he has incredible by comic timing in that. Yeah, and in that, he is the most mature person in a room full of people two and three times his age. So then in Juno, he plays a really timid version of that. So basically, he's George Michael again, mm. um, as Paulie Bleeker. Nick and Nora's infinite play... But like, as Paulie Bleeker, he's actually really quite sweet. Mm. There's not there's not a, a bad bone in Paulie there's Bleeker's no body. There's no edge to him, no. Yeah. And again, it's because he's surrounded by people who are really cynical and mm. harsh on the world. So I think what it ultimately comes down to is Michael Serra is like a... Um, a reflector of the rest of the cast around him. Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. These movies could not have actually been seen by enough people to really make an impact on this box office. Year one, uh, he was playing opposite Jack Black. I think that would be an- another crappy broad comedy that would have pissed people off and they'd have said, you're the worst thing in this, Michael Sarah. Youth in Revolt, again, that's a black comedy and nobody saw it. He's pretty good in that and then Scott Pilgrim I don't think people are as sick of Michael Cera as as these uh, articles are assuming I don't know I remember contemporaneously people were mad at Nick and Nora it was seen as really cloying and I think people assumed that Scott Pilgrim would be a similar thing to that but I remember a lot of contemporaneous like ill will against him ah okay well then, should we put that in the possible? Because there's actually really no way to know, is there? You'd have to literally ask everyone back, uh, you know, whoever did or didn't go and see Scott Pilgrim. What was, was it, the reason you didn't see it? Was the, was the reason you didn't see it because you don't like Michael Sarah? 
to which they would say who, and then you'd have to go into a big, long explanation of who he is and where they might have seen him elsewhere. And then they'd go, oh, I don't know, maybe. But to go back to the whole thing about there being no grown-ups, when he's only got other kids for guidance, like imagine, imagine Edge of Seventeen without the grown-ups. How awful that film would have been without Woody Harrelson. Yeah. The, the grown-ups provide um, the boundaries at the end of the day. This, this, The world in which these guys live is limited in boundaries. And I would say that probably the most grown-up people here are... Let me think. Ramona? Yeah, aside from Ramona, because obviously we're going to talk about that in a bit. Um, but... Wallace. Knives ends up grown up. She Wallace does, is yeah. Wallace is pretty grown up, and he spends most of the film trying to get Scott to move out. Mm. Um, his parents are mentioned, but in the book, his parents are away in Europe, aren't they? Mm -hmm. They do actually give him a call. It's weird when you're reading the book and like a grown up actually communicates with Scott. Yeah, like, but it's from a distance. It's by. Um, electronic no, it's weird in the second book when he actually stands in a room with a person. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I apologise. I didn't get that far. With um, a person. You children aren't even people. Also, um, <laughs> Gideon seems relatively grown up because he's involved with business type stuff. But it's kind of in a business, 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 is this working kind of way. It, it doesn't feel that real. He's so nasty, though, that he seems underdeveloped at the end. He's just like this horrible toddler who learned how to business. Yeah. Um, and then you've got people By standing like... on some other toddler's shoulders. Well, indeed. But then you've got, like, Lucas seems like a grown-up because we know he's progressed from being in ninth grade to now having his own career. Uh, Envy and Todd seem grown up because they've gone off and done other things. Todd and... doesn't seem grown up. Well, in the... okay. In the sense We're that he stretching is the term here. Taller than Scott and fills out a t-shirt. Todd's a bit an better. idiot. <laughs> if you listen to him talk for four seconds, you'll realise that beneath that smolder lies an idiot. Okay. A but woman punching think, idiot as well. I think fundamentally one of the the whole points of the story is that there is a phase in your life, and for some people it never really stops, where everyone around you expects you to be a grown-up. And you're just pretending and you're going through the motions of being a grown-up and hoping to God that nobody notices <laughs> that you're actually still a teenager inside and you really haven't got a clue what you're doing. This is like imposter syndrome in a movie. I completely understand that. I'm... <clears throat> I think I let go of the idea of uh, I have to be horribly grown-up a while back. Mm. Um... But there's also, like, you you don't have to be grown up to be compassionate, to ca be considerate, to care about other people's feelings. Oh, I know, I know. And so many of, the, of, of everything that, like, a lot of his, his friends are, are trying to tell him, you're being an asshole. But they're also assholes, too, at times. Well, to a point, yes. They care about him, and they care about you the, said that earlier. the other people around still, him. Yeah. I, uh, well, that's that's the way it comes off to me. Everybody acts in ways that suggest that they are at least <clears throat> semi-good at interacting with others. Mm. Except for Scott, who um, whines and flails, and, and it has... It, he finds it impossible to make a decision and to actually push forward with something. He yeah. actually appears to be ruled by fear and anxiety. Oh, absolutely. He's standing still the whole time. Mm. Which, it, again, is part of mm. what makes him feel very teenage. And also that his progress <laughs> at the end is about moving forwards. Mm. 
Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So um, there is a separation between real life and enhanced life in this, and basically the real life stuff when it's t you know do you know that Scott's dating a high schooler could not care less about personally, but then when the actual clashes start, when um, Matthew Patel turns up, suddenly I, t I sit up and take a sip of coffee because suddenly the visual flair of this movie zooms open and all of the, the, the quirky little bits that had occurred before, they're, they're kind of fun and funny, but they're not hugely dynamic like the, uh, the action scenes suddenly get. And if, the, if that could somehow have been combined with, a, with characters that I actually gave a toss about, this would be one of my favourite fun films ever. Did you notice they play with the framing as well? Mm -hmm. When it cuts back and forth between um, real life and enhanced life and occasionally when Scott's dreaming, the black bars get bigger or smaller depending ah. on what's going on. You only get full widescreen edge to edge when it's real life. Right. Okay. I'm assuming as we talk through this that everyone like th there's no there's no point explaining the film because you've either already seen it or it's either too confusing or too simple to explain. Um, a boy dates a girl, then finds out he has to fight her evil exes to win her. He fights her evil exes and wins her. That's the plot. That's that's the film. And there's little diversion from that. There's a couple of moments when it seems like he might be out for the count. But there's no, you know, decision to, you know what, screw this, I'm not doing it anymore. It's a, it's a pretty straightforward path. It's a video game where he's going through and fighting the evil boss. It's basically the, um, uh, the Xbox 360 game, which is very much like Double Dragon, um, has that same kind of, you know, just you go through each level. It's a side-scrolling beat, you beat up. Yeah, you beat the boss. <laughs> but the, you'd have to beat all of these other characters with words rather than fists because there's a lot of clashing between characters. But it's all just kind of like slap fights, verbal slap fights, and um, trying to get Scott to grow the fuck up a little bit and failing. I actually found reading the books to be a lot more disconcerting and difficult than just watching it. <clears throat> because of the art style, they look like adorable children. Adorable children who have sex. And it's like love is, which is just creep central. <laughs> so I uh, actually, I, I don't think recommending that I read the next four books, because I've, I've read the first two, is going to suddenly open all of this up for me. It's moments like when they're sat on the floor and um, she, uh, Ramona says, I wish you had a table. I, I, I just I look back on, on the moments of absolute squalor of my youth and think, man, even then I had a flat surface to eat on. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Eat while sitting up at the count, standing up at the counter. Just, jeez, ah. Oh. There, there is a constant series of disconnects, whereas when the actual fighting starts, suddenly I'm in, engaged and involved. There's, there's a real departure in the way it's directed, where... Uh, as you say, there's a lot more visual flair. It gets extremely... The editing, I think, is something we should definitely talk about with this film, where it's edited in all sorts of incredibly creative ways and that really come alive during the uh, you know less mundane parts that I think certainly makes it interesting to look at. Um, but yeah, I can definitely see why someone would see the disconnect there. The way I always framed this franchise in my mind was I thought of it as, like, in the world of, say, River City Ransom or something like that, 
this is what the other people who aren't doing the events of River, River City Ransom are doing. Like, there are people in that world living their lives and having their, like, awkward, underdeveloped 20s and starting crappy bands. And so if you just kind of assume that the whole thing is working by that logic, it kind of, I guess, becomes a bit more coherent and you can have one part plug into the other a bit more. Uh, at least that's how I frame it in my mind. That kind of thing. Like There are a lot of ways to read it where you can read it as, you know, are these direct metaphors? Like, are, the, are there things that are actually happening and then daydreams? Or is it more of a magical realism thing where it's all happening uh, within the world of the film? And that's just the like the that's just the way that this world works. And, you know, that's supposed to be illustrating broader things outside of the film. But, you know, it's it's all, uh, you know, it's all ostensibly genuinely happening. Uh, so I think there's. There's multiple ways that you can read it like that, but so is it metaphor or delusion, basically? Essentially, yes. Or more, is it um, uh, is it di- is it all diegetic, or is some of it non-diegetic? Would be, I guess, the other way to look at it. Mm, yeah. Best way I had it described uh, was that uh, it's like a musical in that uh, when when a, when emotion peaks in a musical and the, the the only way to actually express it is to start singing and everyone all joins in or, or like one person sings something very fantastic or there's a massive duet um it's that only when there's a massive outburst of emotion it turns into a fight so mm. it's a fight cycle <laughs> Yeah, but I think if you if you look at um, how the the musical parallel is handled in um, once more with feeling the um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode, that specifically has a framing device wherein the singing is acknowledged and there's a reason for it. You don't get any of that in Scott Pilgrim. There are moments where he talks about having to fight previous people's ex boyfriends. Um, but it's done in a way that because he's doing this sort of hipster cynic thing, you don't know whether he, he means it. I think in the books he does mean it. So in the sure. books, it absolutely functions as though they all live in the world where a side-scrolling beat-em-up could take place. Right, hmm. okay. So, um, But in the film, it's like, well, this maybe this happened before, maybe it, it, it didn't. And I think possibly that might be one of the reasons why some people found it difficult to... Um, really engage with because if you spend too long trying to work out what it is and why it's happening you miss the points of connection with the the story i think it it, and this is what i mean when i say it's kind of a a fairy tale parallel um in the sense that like with superhero movies really at some point you just have to let go of why is this happening and, and looking for explanations and just go with it yeah, which is why it makes me think of uh, magical realism, which is like kind of underutilized in a lot of things. But uh, in in that kind of sense, where it almost doesn't matter whether or not it's like metaphor or whatever, it's just the way in which the work is being presented to you, and you kind of take it on those terms. Kind of like I guess Pan's Labyrinth, where you can debate is it real or is it not real all day, but that kind of is irrelevant because it's about the emotional and thematic thrust and you can kind of take it either way, but you'll arrive at the same conclusion. 
Yeah, and in, certainly in terms of, of kind of the metaphorical angle, um, I, I really do quite like um, Mikey Newman's uh, reading of it, where the whole thing is, is you, you see it as this emotional battle on Scott's part to reconcile with Ramona's past, which he is ultimately excluded from because he's not cool enough, because he's not evil. He can't um, he can't really deal with the idea that she's had all these exes and she's had this exciting brackets. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. We're all going to die kind of life. Um, it actually reminded me a little bit of Chasing, Chasing Amy. Amy. Yeah. I was waiting for you to finish. Mm. So, I could say, <laughs> so it's a retelling of Chasing Amy where Holden yeah. McNeil literally fights everyone that uh, Alyssa's ever had sex with. Mm. Huh. But some, like, when you go through the book, so many of them were so innocent. Like, she, she smooched Patel for an afternoon and they fought some guys. And, like, she smoked with... Um, Lucas Lee on the pavement, and that's it. Like that, they those count as exes. Uh, it's because he's incredibly immature. I mean, his comparison point is: who is he dating before? He was dating a seventeen-year-old who has never dated anyone before. Mm-hmm. So, just someone who is like slightly her age has seen a couple of things. She's, I think, a year older than him in the books. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she's had a whole seven exes, which, by the sounds of what we hear about his. Uh, past isn't necessarily like you know way ahead of him we hear that he's kind of like this vaguely scummy lady killer um but it it, killer i think that's the actual word that gets used but um (laughs) i know it's hard to pin that on michael sarah but uh he only kills one lady it's with one touch (laughs) (laughs) one i think one of the reasons that 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 makes me think that this comes across more to me as Ramona's story than Scott's, though, is that if you're trying to deal with your partner's emotional backstory, it should be in reverse. He should be dealing with the most recent exes first and mm. then working his way backwards. To be working through them <clears throat> early to recent, it makes more sense for Ramona to be processing them that way. Mm. Yeah, but then you don't get that nice video game structure where the big bad is at the end. Yes, indeed. It also kind of reminds me a little bit of High Fidelity. Only, again, it's the it's the wrong person doing the self-examination. Mm. Like, look, uh, it's Rob looking back through his past and, uh, you know, the, the girls that he dated or kissed or had sex with once mm. and, you know, like read so much into that particular scenario and it really doesn't amount to that much in yeah. terms of how it but impacts on him now. One of the things I really like about High Fidelity, though, is that it's very knowing about the fact that Rob is an idiot yeah. and the way he looks at those relationships is so clueless mm. in terms of the reality, particularly um, the one I really like is the the girl who wouldn't have sex with him in high school. Mm. And then he got pissed at her because she went off and had sex with somebody else. Mm. Um, and she pours her heart out about how much that messed her up. And his conclusion from all of that is, it wasn't my fault. Uh. What? <laughs> Yeah, Nick Hornby has a uh, a way of uh, making pathetic men entertaining. Yes, yes, he does. Uh, and to be fair, so does Edgar Wright. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Wow. Um, <laughs> Come on, Sean's hilarious. He is, totally. But, Although uh, nobody's going to call Nicholas Angel pathetic. Gary w- uh, was trying until we really started... Uh, Yes. Like digging into exactly what was going on with him. Mm. Uh, but we'll do the world's end at some point, folks. Although you can rush that one to the front of the queue if you want. What I will say, though, is what slightly throws the whole what's hap- whether this is happening in reality or not. You know um, Scott Pilgrim versus the animation? Yes. It's a little four-minute short uh, based on a snippet from the beginning of the second book flashing back to uh, Scott in high school when uh, he uh, dated Kim for a short while, the drummer who never blinks. And um, nobody blinks in the film because uh, Edgar Wright asked no one to blink because it would be more anime. Uh, But she's a trooper at not blinking and also maintaining that just stony face. Uh, But yeah, so she and Scott were a thing for a while and they, they they, they keep it relatively low and subdued, but clearly she was, you know, quite involved with him. And from the sounds of it, he moved to Toronto and she's now living in Toronto. So you can read into that quite a lot. But she tells him in one of the later books, allegedly, apparently, you can confirm this one or not, that um, his his remembering uh, of saving her from a kidnapping attempt, actually, that wasn't the case. She was never kidnapped. So that uh, calls yeah. into question a hell of a lot of things that might not actually have happened. There's a lot in the books about Scott re-examining his memories of things. Yeah, that's that's it's a, it's a recurring motif in the sixth one, and... Um, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of that fit like the, one of the main things that gets said about this is that it's all kind of happening in Scott's head in this abstracted romanticized way processed through just a lifetime of consuming like video games and comic books and stuff like that. So that's definitely a thing. But yeah, in the in the book, it actually has like little things marked memory cam and they're drawn like little child's drawings. One of the original endings, and this will chill your bones, um, that uh, Brian Brian Lee O'Malley was thinking about was, what if Scott's just a murderer and he's killing these men? And then at the end, you find out that when they shattered the coins, what he was really doing was battering their corpses to the ground. And that's a little dark. It's a little, like, great way to ensure you don't get another popular book series because audiences will turn on you if you do something like that yeah that that is a little even scary the characters in there talk about them exploding right they they talk about the, they, you headbutted they my boyfriend till he ex- till he burst yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that once again, you can kind of get into this uh, diegesis versus non-diegesis thing, but I find it best to treat it as a kind of uh, magical realism or a kind of like video realism, where you kind of assume it's happening on its own terms and that this is just how this world functions. Yeah, I always did. I, I was never sort of watching it and going, but is he really fighting them? I was like, yeah, you know, it's the first of the evil exes. Yeah. You take it at face value. There's not that much subtext really in there there's very little growth there's very little character all of that stuff that Sharon and I normally talk about it's highly visual which is useless to talk about in audio formats um, it's it's one of the reasons why we don't do comedy much because how do you explain why things are funny yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and we don't tend to talk at length about very visually stylish movies that have very little else to them mm. you know yeah. I think what, what it's also why we don't do anime <laughs> <laughs> um, I think as well, though, what you're saying about the the whole um, 
debating about whether or not it's real, Alex, um, Alex M, that is. It, it kind of comes down other to Other Alex. Other Alex. Nice. <laughs> it kind of comes down hurt. to this... Uh, <laughs> oh. um, it comes down to this idea of, um, like, if you've got a child that's trying to ask for your help with the monsters under the bed... You can't help that child if all you do is sit there and try and convince them that the monsters aren't real. You have to start from a standpoint of, okay, let's say the monsters are there. How are we going to deal? Oh, save it for raising a geek child. We're doing that in a few weeks' time. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, ultimately, and again, I think that does tie in with the idea that that these are, by and large, children pretending to be grown-ups. And and this is why they largely seem unsuccessful. Um, and um, and again, that's the the fact that Ramona does seem to be trying to play things in a relatively real, down to earth, adult kind of way, is why the alternative ending really annoys me. Do you, do you want to talk about that now? In the sense, because ultimately, it, it, okay. if it plays into what's happening and what's not happening, and the rest we're just talking about is detail. Yeah, the the to me. The way the arc of the story plays... You'll have to actually explain what happens in the alternate ending. Right, okay. Um, And we have to explain what happens in the comic ending. Right. Okay, well, let's start with the actual ending of the film as it's released. Yeah. Um, They get to the end of everything. Um, Ramona's final ex-boyfriend has been dispatched. Rendered onto coin. Yeah. And, um, And Scott has his final boss battle off screen. And then there is a conversation between Ramona and Scott and Knives, um, the end of which Ramona starts to walk away and Knives basically says to Scott, you love her, go go after her. And he does. And Ramona walks into, she's been using this sort of doorway into... Oh, space. don't even get me started on subspace <laughs> highways. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll leap conveniently over that. But basically, Ramona diegetically or non-diegetically opens a door in the movie to walk out and Scott basically says he wants to come with her and so they walk off together through this doorway into presumably what will presumably Prague. be the rest of their lives okay the alternative ending mm-hmm. which to me makes infinitely more sense oh right you wanted this one to be the case yeah when I say it annoys me what annoys me is the fact that they didn't use it ah see this is why it's interesting that we don't talk about this stuff while we're watching it because then she can vent then rather than me yeah yeah Yeah. and then having lost all the fire by the time we get oh damn okay yeah go for it so um, so the whole progression of um, Ramona's story it makes sense to me that at the end of all of this she would leave walk away from scott and go and deal with the stuff that she has to deal with separate from this world because she is not of this world she this is the peanuts world where everybody is kids and, and she's is a grown-up she doesn't fit and she's a grown-up she doesn't fit here so for her to walk she can't away talk about puck man at the end of it on the one hand, yes, you could argue that it's basically saying she's going to carry on with the same pattern that she's done before, having the, the boyfriend or girlfriend walking away and moving on and trying ineffectually to start again. Or you could argue that Scott was an attempt to escape from having to face a past which she now has no choice but to go out and deal with because all of the people that represented that past have now exploded in a shower of coins. Mm. Meanwhile, Scott goes and and, um, repairs his relationship with Knives, they go back to the arcade and it ends on them 
um, doing the fight dance game, which they do earlier in the movie. Dance Ninja Revolution or something. Yeah, something like that. Um, and it's lovely. It's really sweet. It, the idea that Scott is going to go back and actually try to make a relationship work rather than bounce from one to the next to the next to the next, effectively repeating the pattern that Ramona had been repeating before. Mm-hmm. Um and it just, for me, it just made far more sense and felt much more of a natural conclusion to that story and the way it played out. Audiences didn't like it. Test audiences did not like it, apparently. Please tell me they didn't change their mind based on... Or something. I think there were other things, like the, the way that the last yeah. comic turned out um, played into it as well. I can only conclude that there was. And also the fact that um, because Ramona is being presented as the image of a manic pixie dream girl, even if she doesn't actually behave like one, the fact that Scott wins her, wins, inverted commas, mm-hmm. at the end, annoyed the piss out of me. I can understand so, why it would. There we go. So the fact that he fought for her all that time and then realised that actually that's not what he really wanted and that he made a more mature decision to then move on from that and let go of the idea of winning her felt better Hmm. to me I would like just to harken back to when I mentioned the word Manic Pixie Dream Girl other Alex jumped in to to refute that I I actually wasn't calling her a Manic Pixie Dream Girl I think the the end of what I was uh, uh, going to say was that uh, while she is quirky and uh, it's easy to to point out as as you said Alex that, that there are lots of like superficially you could point to that and go, well, that's a Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Look at her crazy hair. When I think of the dictionary definition of Manic Pixie Dream Girl, it's Natalie Portman in Garden State. It is literally a girl who goes, that's the only time anyone's ever done that. Join me in the crazy. And tries to sort of shake uh, Andrew, who is a very bolted down young man, into uh, more of a state of chaos and freedom. And, you know, Garden State has its charms, and I do like it, but she is the exact definition of a manic pixie dream girl, and that is not what I see when I look at Ramona. I don't see her trying to shake up Scott's world at all on purpose. Yeah, I mean, I think you can kind of sum it up in the statement where he he gets all weirded out because she's changed her hair and she and she says i change my hair about once every week and a half get used to it mm. and then that's it that's that it, it is a thing that is her <clears throat> it's a thing that is hers she does have her own life that's going on separate from him and you do very much get that mm. about her but i think like i said she's she is drawn the way she is and she is painted the way she is because she's meant to be kind of highlighting that mm. that trope and and how that is often portrayed the romantic pixie dream girl is not there to say let's have a grown-up conversation and a moment of quiet intimacy Mm. that's the opposite (laughs) Uh, although interestingly there is a moment of quiet intimacy in garden state actually it's the one in the tub Mm. it's lovely what i was going to say is i think to an extent uh film audiences tend to say manic pixie dream girl when basically what they just mean is hipster chick Mm. I, i think that the overall characterization stuff has kind of been lost in the colloquial use of the term. Mm. Well, the, the frustrating thing about that character trope is that very often um, it's, it's... As with Mary Sue, it is superficially reapplied to things that it doesn't necessarily account for. Well, yes, but no, what I mean is that that, that type of character is usually pretty underdeveloped. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, um, and they're vapid, have... they have no internality... Exactly. They they don't really have anything to do for themselves, um, whereas Ramona has this entire back history. And 
obviously we're seeing it through the the, the viewpoint of um, it all being about Scott, but this is what I mean when I say Scott thinks this is his story, but it's not. Mm. To, to everything that, that comes up and happens in this is not really about him. He just thinks it is. This song is called I Am Sad, so very, very sad. Thank you. This next one's called We Hate You, Please Die. Before we go into the final part of it, there is a definite divide between the way Scott sees himself and how Scott actually is. And um, more may have been made, in the film at least, to... Uh, to sl- like Everyone disapproving of the things he does. Um, nobody actually stops him and says, Rating awesome? Are you fucking kidding me? Like, you know, stop giving yourself 10 out of 10s for everything. This like this is ridiculous levels of overcompensation. He sees himself as, as kind of a, a superhero, which is why the, the clashes with these um, the evil exes are so epic in scale and so pleasing to watch. But there's no actual connection between what he does and how he sees himself. Mm. Indeed. Scott Pilgrim's Finest Hour, Volume Six. This is the this will be the last leg of the film, and it, it from the sounds of it plays out very differently. Uh, this is from Wikipedia. Uh, four months after Ramona's disappearance, because Ramona literally disappears rather than going off with uh, Graves, she literally just evaporates. Uh, Scott's been wasting his life playing video games in order to reinvigorate Scott to confront Gideon. Wallace sends him on a wilderness sabbatical to Kim's home up north. While walking in the woods, Kim tells Scott of the errors in his repressed memory surrounding their breakup. He never saved her from a kidnapping, that's the bit I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Upon this re- revelation, Scott's head starts to glow and Nega Scott emerges. So Nega Scott was a much more of a, like a, a symbolic character rather than just a punchline, which is that in the film it's the exact reverse of you. It's just kind of a nice guy. And it's also because at that point he quite likes himself as opposed to when he had previously been kind of racked with self-doubt and self-depreciation. But that's the thing. When they take away, there were actually two lead-ups to Negus Scott. He sees it in the mirror in a deleted scene and then he sees him, I think, on a bus in another deleted scene. But they took those two out so that when Negus Scott appeared, it would uh, be, um, be great for the audience and they really enjoyed seeing him as opposed to making that the subtext of his character. There is a hint, though. Oh, yeah? With the Nega Ninja? Nope. Nope. The phone box. Yeah, I saw the phone box. Okay. <laughs> there is a moment when the camera pans around and his eye is very briefly red because there's a red thing in in the reflection. Mm, and there's slightly eerie music playing. But it's when he's about to do a nega Scotty thing. So, mm. yeah. I, okay, so I'm glad we both... There's also that. the Nega Ninja in the arcade game. Yes, that that's of course the set that that be the the setup so that the punchline of Nega Scott is at least understood by the audience. Although interestingly, I wouldn't need a Nega Ninja setup. I'd go, well, it's just Dark Link, isn't it? Mm. Or just like like your shadow. I understand the shadow. Okay, uh, so Scott becomes determined to defeat him so that he can forget his relationship with Ramona and move on. But Kim reminds him he cannot keep running away from his mistakes. Scott remembers Ramona and merges with Nega Scott, fully remembering and accepting responsibility for his poor actions in his previous relationships. See, in the original Prince of Persia, um, 
I told you in this in the kitchen a few uh, weeks back. Um, you got come up against the Dark Prince, and no matter how hard you fight him, uh, he will always win and stab you and beat you. you. What you've got to do is put your sword away, and then he mirrors you and puts his sword away, and then you shake hands and carry on and move on. That's that's a really neat gaming moment. Mm. I love that. In the Ocarina of Time. When I first encountered Dark Link out on the uh, the this big he put flat, put your sword lake. away and he killed you. <laughs> well, I was just like, right, I'm just going to approach him without my sword, and then we're going to just park company. No, he's trying to kill me. <laughs> and so I was like, right, so there's got to be something then. And then I started like attacking him a bit, and then I was like, right, well, just how about if I just block? No, no, he doesn't like that either. And then eventually I, I checked a guy and it's just like, just keep hitting him really hard. I was like, that's it. That's it. Shigeru Miyamoto. That's it. That's me deeply considering my darker self. Hit it really hard. <laughs> Go back to the drawing board, Shigzy, till you can do Breath of the Wild. I'd hate to read his like self-help book. <laughs> <laughs> just hit yourself just hit really it. hard. Hit it hard. Right. Speaking of the shadow. Fifteen times should be enough. Here is more evidence, by the way, that this is not Scott's story. If this was Scott's story, the big boss would not be Gideon. It would be Envy. Yeah. Envy is his shadow. Yeah. Okay. Um... Interesting, considering what's coming up here. Uh, Kim, uh, da, 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 da. Scott heads back to Toronto to earn Ramona back. Um, so basically, he accepts his responsibility for his poor actions at this point before he gets to the club. Scott arrives at the newly opened club, the Chaos Theatre, owned by Gideon, where Envy is making her solo debut. As Envy starts her performance, Gideon attacks Scott when Scott refuses to join the League of Evil Exes because there's a lot of times when it seems like he might be becoming one after he's beaten Roxy. He's wearing a four and a half t-shirt, which is like he's sort of gearing up to maybe take her place as, as an evil ex. He's got that there. Like, when he tears off the X-Men patch at the beginning, that's him discarding the idea to begin with, but then he starts going into his dark night of the soul. If you want to look for characterization, there that is. It's um, also worth mentioning that he's aligned a lot with the number zero. He drinks mm, Coke mm. Zero. He has the Smashing Pumpkin Zero shirt. I was mm. kind of surprised the song Zero didn't actually show up in the film, yeah. but, yeah. What do you think? Really it's a good uh, song. I miss it. It is. I was listening to Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness earlier today, just to ah, get yes. into the headspace. Because, I mean, there's, there, like, there were a bunch of different albums that Brian listened to while doing each book. And, of course, the third, the third one, I think, is called Scott, Scott Cogan and the Infinite Scale yeah. Sadness. It's a shame Billy Corgan turned out to be such a prick. Yeah, that is a shame. But 1979, still an incredible song. As is Tonight Tonight. As is Zero. As is... Um, <clears throat> Bullet with butterfly wings. Uh, there we go. There we go. <laughs> I'm assuming you're going to snip that little pause out so nah, that it doesn't look it like in. you had to go and look it up. I'll leave it in. <laughs> anyway, um, so they're at the club. Uh, Envy's doing a solo debut. As Envy starts her performance, Gideon attacks Scott. When Scott refuses to join the League of Evil Exes, Gideon steals his power of love sword and kills him with it. He literally stabs him. There's a great big bloody spray. Just straight up kills him. Scott awakens in a desert where he encounters Ramona and they reconcile. So basically Ramona has disappeared and this is the first time he encounters her again. Scott returns to life thanks to the extra life he attained. Although this was from Todd Ingram as opposed to when he uh, destroyed the Naga brothers. Sharon, don't read ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. I, di I didn't know that was Todd's surname. Um, just look up Engram. Oh, God damn it. 
Ian Graham? Yeah, I just want to make sure I'm right on this. I think it's the... um, A hypothetical permanent change in the brain accounting for the existence of memory, a memory trace. Yeah, it's a term used in Scientology and Dianetics for a recording of a past painful event not normally accessible to the conscious mind. So there you go. Todd is a painful memory not normally accessible to the conscious mind. Yeah, he is. Uh, uh, Ramona bursts out of his chest to confront Gideon. Gideon, So basically Ramona was in him all along? At this point, like, you not, can't even... Not quite. It's, she can use... It, it's... There's a lot more made of the subspace highways in the books, but the idea is basically what she's actually done is she just went away to her parents' house and moped much like he was. She hadn't been kidnapped away. She just needed some time to herself to figure things out, and she fell into her own funk. Okay, uh, what does this symbolize, then? If you're going to cite Pan's Labyrinth, which is heavy with symbolism... Yep, Sharon? If Envy's his shadow, Ramona's his anima. Ah. Which makes sense for her coming But that then becomes Scott's story again, and not Ramona's. Uh, Yeah, but you know how I feel about the whole, if you've got two characters and it looks like one is the other's anima, then the other is the other's animus, and you can read it either way. All right. Ideally, both, because that's how you get balance. Gideon explains that the glow is an emotional weapon which seals people inside their own heads. The glow, it's a glow he uses. It's a special That's a microphone's reference. Okay. Consumed by self-loathing and personal demons, Scott jumps into Ramona's subspace bag and arrives in her head where he... There you go. See? See? And that makes... Yes, that is perfect sense. She comes out of his chest. That's where the anima sits in your heart. He comes out of her head. That's where your animus is in your brain. I would love for you to ask Brian O'Malley that and him say, what? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even... Just say that again? Because I didn't realise I was so brilliant. (laughs) Because so much of the other stuff seems to be either random or um, just because it sounded cool. Uh, he confronts Gideon. Scott's actions encourage Ramona to fully overcome Gideon's influence and, uh, whoop, and oust him from her head. Ramona retrieves the power of love sword when Scott see- What's What are you doing? Yeah, no, no, no. It's just, this is proving my point. Gideon is Ramona's shadow, which means that developing her animus is mm. what helps her to overcome him. When Scott sees Gideon snap at envy, he comes to understand that he has been no better than Gideon in terms of his past relationships. This realisation earns him the power of understanding sword. When Gideon tries to turn Scott and Ramona against one another, they defeat him, causing him to explode into 7,777,777 coins, which rain painfully on the watching crowd. <laughs> Scott and Envy reach closure, and Ramona reveals that her disappearance was merely an unsuccessful wilderness sabbatical. She decides to give her relationship with Scott another shot. In the closing pages, Scott is working with Stephen as co-chef. See, Knives Chow was pretty much done by book two. They have their uh, she and Ramona have their oh, clash right. in book two. I see. Uh, but although Knives Chow's father comes back to fight Scott later, when it appears he's not dating her at all because he doesn't want uh, his daughter dating a white guy. Um, Stephen reveals that he is gay and in a relationship with Joseph. Uh, Joseph is the replacement bassist that Stephen gets in because Stephen literally kicks Scott out of his band and makes a new one. Uh, and good because Scott deserves to be kicked out of the band because he is a, a, a selfish bell end and needs that kind of shock to pull himself back up from. And then he goes off and tries to teach at grade school how to. I was thinking play of doing. I was thinking of doing. <laughs> Read between the lines. Stephen, uh, da, da, da. so, uh, yeah, Stephen, we never got to see this, but Stephen's gay. Now, um, Wallace comes off as 
apart from the fact that he's Scott's conscience and is sarcastic and rude, um, that they, they keep jabbing on the gay button and there doesn't appear to be that much more to him. But there doesn't appear to be that much more to any of the characters, so I'll guess I'll just give that one a pass. The thing I like about it is that it made gay absolutely fine with a lot of people who were otherwise, I don't know, I haven't even really met any gay characters. This guy's gay? Okay. And then, um, like, to normalize it, that's the, you know, for it to just be a thing that nice people and assholes are also, you know. I, I would say this. Wallace is is just about, Ramona aside, my favorite character in this. Oh, yeah? yeah he's, well, he's got a conscience for a start. He keeps... You know, pushing at Scott. He's one of the most grown-up people person. in the story. He's one of the most real people in the story, as in there actually seems to be other stuff going on. He has suitable levels him. of disapproving of Scott. Yeah. Um, he has... Um, he sort of tries to give Scott encouragement to grow and develop and, you know, even to the point of pushing him out of the front door. He has been kind to Scott to the extent that I'm willing to bet this is... Wallace's apartment, and Scott is living here rent-free. Certainly all the stuff in the apartment is Wallace's. I will bet you 7,777,777 <laughs> shiny coins that that is the case. Yeah. And um, also, where the hell is Scott getting money for caramel macchiatos? He doesn't have a job. Like, I assume his parents give him a stipend or something, because mm. he's living in this nuclear bunker across the street. <laughs> in the comic, anyway. he just straight up uses Wallace's credit card. Oh... There's a bit when he's he's on the internet and he goes, "What's the what? What can I use? It's Amazon CA. What's their address? Amazon CA. That was dated in 2004. It's like, oh, Scott doesn't even know what the internet is. In 2010, it's ancient. It's like seriously, I, I, do they still make you? Are you from the past? In 2017, <laughs> Scott not knowing how to use that old ass computer. It's like caveman times. Mm. Yeah. And There's, also, it's like uh, he was like, right, I want to get some CDs delivered using um, uh, Wallace's credit card details. Well, wouldn't the thing be addressed to Wallace? Because if you if you change the name, it says, oh, okay, so you're delivering to Scott Pilgrim at this address, which you've never done before. I'm going to need your credit card details again. Scott would literally have to prize the credit card out of Wallace's wallet to do that. That's how Amazon works. Unless he's used Wallace's credit card to buy things on the internet so many times that he has all the details committed to memory. But he doesn't know what Amazon is. Good point. <laughs> Where is he buying this mysterious stuff if it's not Amazon? And they only have apparently one person delivering Amazon stuff in Toronto, and it's Ramona. Mm. Yeah. Anyway. The other reason, by the way, that Wallace gets extra points is because it's Kieran Culkin. Oh, Kieran and Culkin. Fantastic. I love him. He's awesome. He is great. Um, anyway, so after the, um, Stephen is in a relationship with Joseph, Scott and Kim start an awful new band and Knives heads off to college, so she's off on her own life. The last pages show Scott meeting up with Ramona as they affirm their desire to face the challenges of a relationship and walk hand in hand into a subspace door together. So effectively, they change that ending you wanted mm. into something closer to how this book is. Yeah. However, I will say that with all of that going on, everything that you've just described makes that ending much deeper and makes more sense to me that if that had all happened mm. in the film, mm -hmm. I would have been much happier with the ending where he stays with Ramona. Right. Okay, so that is that the, yeah. the the best ending? If this is a video game and your yeah. Mass Effect choices, <laughs> that's the green ending. This is this is the synthesis ending. <laughs> Nobody argue with me on that one. I I will take this to my grave. The synthesis ending is the best ending. 
Oh, I'm starting it's, a fight it's the, here. It's aren't the I? thematically coherent ending. It's the only one that actually you know works within the four. I have a lot of things to say about the Mass Effect three ending. Mm-hmm. It's. I think it's going to be one of those games, but the one of those things like Metal Gear Solid two, where in ten years we go, oh, that was actually perfect. What were we doing at the time? Those are the th- the three, the four potential endings: the uh, um, the, the the comic book, uh, the uh, original movie ending, the final movie ending, and the Scots a serial killer ending. <laughs> Um, so let's let's that's per- the awful ending. Let's perk it up a bit with little details that we noticed, just to, to make it a little bit more fun. And uh, also, we can talk about the evil exes as we're doing. I was going to say me, we haven't said anything about. We evil haven't, exes, and they're and the they best are, thing in it. They really are. They're awesome. They're I love all apart from the Katayanaga twins, who are a cheat, and they just toss them in there, and they shouldn't have been in there in the first place. They made it seven rather than five because. Five isn't enough, but apparently in the comic book they turn into robots and send other robot companions to fight them, and it's um, well, they're, oh, that, ro- that... they're roboticists, and yeah, okay. they're awesome. They're like these Bond villains. They like they actually talk. They have lines. Okay. They interact. It's great. Oh, well, they. I would also quite have liked to see that, but it's already a long ass film anyway. Mm. I think it takes way too long to get to Matthew Patel. And it just feels long because the third act sucks, but that's another conversation. Hmm. Um, but like we can talk about the X's as well as little things that we noticed going along. I've got a big bullet-pointed list. Apparently Sharon didn't make any notes, so she's not. She's going to have to think from her head. But when it starts with the Universal logo and it's pixelated... I'm trying to work out what sound chip that is because it's not the SNES sound chip. The SNES sound chip has this sort of kind of... Okay, put it like this. Here's the NES, and it's actually really a very simple sound chip. And here's the SNES, and it's got this sort of rounded pom-pom-pom-pom-pom quality to it. (laughs) 
Either way, it's... Uh, it, so what you're saying is it's not 8-bit, it's not 16-bit, it's somewhere in the middle. It kind of sounds more like an, an Amiga 500 sound chip. Okay. Yeah. That's some skill. Monkey Island. Do you remember that? The uh, Lucas, LucasArts games. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Um, but the uh, the original the so the video game on 360, it's it's got the pixelated logo, but it's got the original Universal thing behind it, so it sounds weird. It's like if you're ever going to do the the chip tunes thing, do it here. Mm. But the video game also has Anna Managuchi doing the soundtrack, and that is actually really lovely to listen to. It's more it's more fun to listen to than to play. It's kind of a grind when you're when you're playing through. It's like just there isn't enough of a move set. It's not Streets of Rage two, but uh, it, it's fun to watch. And uh, I watched the boss crawl. There's a box today. quote for you. It's <laughs> not Streets of Rage two. Well, no, because Streets of Rage two <laughs> is the greatest brawler of all time and will never be bettered. Okay. I wish it would. Could maybe do a, an HD remake. I was paying attention like a hawk to this. It starts with the SNES Link to the Past. The, the Triforce from the title screen. And I was like, well, that suddenly becomes diegetic music because young Neil young is playing, playing it. it. And I was like, hang on a second. He's playing a DS Lite and there's no cartridge in the top. And I happen to know that Link to the Past only came out on GBA and it never came out on DS cards. So there had better be a GBA cartridge in the bottom of that DS Lite. And you can see it for one brief shot. It's totally there. They got right wow. the one thing that everybody gets wrong. Points Congratulations. 10 out of 10. 10 on 10. Somebody get young Neil a Game Boy Advance because all he does is play Super Mario World and uh, uh, Legend of Zelda Link to the Past on his DS Lite. Is he doing it because it's got a better backlight on the screen? Uh, well, it's, it's like an illuminated screen rather than uh, like lit like the DS. It's either way. The DS Lite with GBA carts shoved into it was great times. And I remember when the, uh, the DSi came out where they took away that cartridge port. And I did a whole thing on my show of like, right, this is a pricey downgrade. Don't fall for that shit. I remember that episode. You were passionate. Wow. (laughs) You are old school. I'm a a long-time Digital Cowboys listener. Wow, okay. Fantastic. Well, yeah, like I said back in the day, don't get a DSi. And I was bloody right. Because GBA cartridges still have that snares appeal to them. Whereas... There's nothing the DSi can give you now. Sex Bobomb is a reference to Super Mario Brothers 2. So again, your 22-year-olds in the audience might not know what that's in reference to. And again, you've got this weird kind of like culture clash of like 8-bit games being delivered to like if anything this is a 30-year-old man looking back on when he was 22. You know, hmm. if that makes Which sense. makes sense for the, the timeline of the comics. I, I know what you mean about it feeling a little bit odd, and I think this is where a lot of the hipstery feel of it comes mm. from, is that if these people are supposed to be sort of 22 to 25, mm. that means they were born mid to late 80s. No, mid to late 80s. Yeah. Yeah? 
So a little bit young to have sure, experienced yeah, they themselves much of this, wouldn't this have, culture. Yeah. Either they got into it because they had older brothers and sisters who were into it, so yeah. they got into it really, really young, or they got into it late. Yeah, because if they're 22 in 2010, you know, mm. so it's baffling. But, um, like, the ideal here could have been to, like, do the, go the Richard Linklater route uh, with uh, the original Dazed and Confused. He made that about his high school life. And it's an observation of how shitty kids can be to each other mm. from the perspective of an adult, but right in there in a non-patronising way with the kids. Yeah, and he set it in the late 70s. Yeah, so it's a period piece mm. rather than it just being sort of now. Also that voiceover bit at the beginning where it's like Scott Pilgrim, you know, once upon a time, da 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 It's It probably would have been a good idea to either have that throughout the film or not at all. Like just having it once and then it comes back at one point when it's talking about his haircut, and um, it, it, it does that, he is, he isn't. Uh, and that's that's doing Arrested Development, which um, the uh, I've done it myself in New Century, which um, obviously Edgar Wright and I are big fans of. Always hiding behind your oh-so-special friends. At least I have friends. I have plenty of friends. She doesn't. No wonder you couldn't pull that sword so very erroneously convinced of your own moral superiority. She was. I could actually have taken Ron Howard doing narration the whole way through it. I think that would have been brilliant. Um, because, again, that that then connects it to the adults. It makes it um, uh, much more of a sort of, we are poking fun at Scott, you're not supposed to find him cool. Mm. Again. Um, I've already said that no blinking and Kim's the best at it. Um, da -da -da -da. Oh, the the general tone, especially at the beginning, with all the the madcap goings on, and like the bit where Scott um, just signs the thing and tosses the CDs behind him, and they go straight in the bin. Thirty three tries in the original uh, <laughs> way going through. Um, and then the bit where Knives comes to talk to him and Scott rushes off camera to the right and then dives through the window on the left. A brilliant bit of visual humour. It's straight out of space. It really makes it clear that despite the fact this didn't make any money, Edgar Wright probably was one of the best people to do this, or at least this is his version of it, mm. clearly. it's It doesn't feel compromised in the way that... Um, directors who get shouted down by the system. You know how The Wolverine has that awful third act? Mm -hmm. Like, Alec, Alec, other Alex, you say that the uh, third act's awful. It still at least feels relatively consistent with the um, first two acts. The last part of The Wolverine, the last quarter of the film, is, is totally incongruous. And especially once you've seen Logan, doesn't feel like a film by James Mangold. And possibly the reason for that is that when The Wolverine was made, James Mangold didn't have either the experience or the confidence or the lack of fucks to say no, you won't. <laughs> if you, if you Logan, search in you my did. head, you won't find one fuck anywhere. <laughs> Scott talks about peeing all the time. I gotta pee, I gotta do this. Did I just pee myself? And lest we forget, I got a pee on her. I, there's a little reference when uh, Mary St uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Winstead takes off her boot, and it's like a little reference to Tarantino and his foot fetishism. Scott, like and the Graduate, and oh, I suppose so. Yeah, there's a double reference to the Graduate because there's that whole, you know, Mrs. Mrs. Flowers, you're trying to seduce me, but also at the end of the alternate take 
the alternate ending when uh, they've just finished the Dance Dance Ninja Revolution game and they smile at each other. Scott's smile begins to fade a little bit, just like the end of The Graduate, where they're sort of like, okay, now we're kind of stuck with each other. What are we going to do with this thing? The Her taking off her boots kind of a reference to Quentin Tarantino's foot fetishism, but Scott, I, I think... His talking about PP all the time just makes him seem even more like younger than twelve, mm. like six. Yeah. Well, that's. I mean, ultimately, that's. He's he, in a Freudian sense. He is stuck in the elimination phase of his growing up, um, and hasn't moved on from it. And also, it's an avoidance technique. Mm. Anytime things get uncomfortable, he goes to the toilet. Yeah. 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 He uses it as his uh, his magic. Uh, teleportation stick to get him out of a sticky situation. Indeed. There's a Seinfeld moment. Did you spot it? I, I never saw any Seinfeld, so... Well, he comes back into the bomb shelter and goes... Bow, 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 and, like, he's oh, happy. Oh, the sitcom bit. Yeah, yeah okay. that's Seinfeld. Mm, okay. Again, you're not going to snag the 22-year-old kids in the audience with that one. Mm. But, uh, but you know, the 30-year-old... I don't know, I was sat there thinking, mm, looks a bit like they're trying to do Will and Grace, maybe? I really think that Edgar Wright, while tr- while shaving his beard, was trying to get people his age to look back on who they were at 20 and sort of, like, go, oh, we were idiots back then. Mm. But because there's no adult character in the film, no nonchalant Woody Harrelson to go, okay, I cannot locate my interest in this situation but you have a good day um no there's no anchor for the adults you know it's it becomes it's a slippery rock surface in the rain Mm. for us to climb up maybe you need to observe it as a period piece is is there any particular technology that really marks it out as early 2000s the uh, wallace's computer it's old it's old and everybody's got flip phones Mm. Yeah, I mean, you you could take it as like a, a 90s film that was filmed many years too late. Mm. Maybe. Or at least an early 2000s film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, certainly its portrait of hipsterdom, the way it frames music, is very mid-2000s, not like... I mean, in the in the mid two thousands, like the Pitchfork set, it was very much very white indie rock, and mm. it began to diversify into, you know, uh, hip hop and experimental music and uh, more diverse things towards the end. And now, obviously, if you look at, I think Pitchfork's best films of uh, best uh, albums of last year, almost all of the top ten were made by black artists. So the of like hipsterdom and like young 20s life is very specifically 2004 in a way that makes which does make me think like they shouldn't have waited so yeah there's definitely something to the period piece point they maybe shouldn't have waited but they maybe also should just have definitely finished it and done it all in one go and released it in 2004. Because if you like, if you look back on the early 2000s in terms of movies, there are some stinkers there that came out that were unnecessarily popular. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there still are now today. But like, you look back on the early 2000s, you're like, what were people thinking? Uh, like, how how did Charlie's Angels get watched at all? <laughs> yeah, just the entire career of McGee is a mystery that will never yeah. be solved. Bingo. Um, again with the Seinfeld moment there's the line I think maybe my worst line in the whole movie is it my worst line? I think there was another one maybe that also grates I don't want you gaying up the place yeah wow 
Oh, the other worst line is the whole, uh, I'm in lesbians with you. It's slightly more juvenile than constantly talking about pee-pee and poo-poo. So... Right. Yeah? I don't want to make excuses, um, because it is a pretty appalling line. However, the fact that it's set in the middle of all of that, I think it's a deliberate elbow to very um, uh, tone-deaf sitcoms. Alternatively, it's just a bad joke. I mean, I guess my question there would be, uh, what dimension does it add by also pointing out that these sitcoms were tone deaf and that they were... I don't think that that adds to the scene. It might just be like an incidental touch if it is deliberate, Mm. but I think more likely... I forget if that's actually a line in the comic, but I don't know. To me, that seems... Like, it seems like it was just a badly judged line and mm. along something that they did keep sincerely harping on about. It's like you're trying to make a chili and someone says, let's throw some curry powder in. You're like, I don't think curry powder will really vibe with this chili. No, just chuck it in. It's fine. You're just making a great big mess. It's like, mm. I can definitely taste that curry in there. And it's uh, like, you know, if we were making a curry, that would have been great. But it's... Except that the curry and... powder is casual homophobia. and if you already don't like scott it's really gonna underline that Eh, he's he's pushing me away you horrible little turd even further yeah the the ideal with a, a character who is as flawed as scott is that we see our flaws in him from the get go and we go oh you little bastard but i can sort of see myself like woody is always the guy I come back to like that. He wants what's best for Andy, but he's so selfish about how he executes it. And like we, we see ourselves in that, and then when he gets to his low point and realises how much of a shit he's been to everyone, we can go there with him, mm. as opposed to, and you're finally here, Scott. Well done. Welcome to the real world. I think what what bugs me a little bit about sort of every time he's, he's me That's Woody to... in Toy Story, not... Yeah. <laughs> um, every time he's mean to or dismissive of Wallace, um, and it, possibly this is one of the reasons why Wallace is one of my favourite characters, it's purely out of sympathy. Mm. Um, because it's like, you, okay, this is a guy in who, under whose roof you live, in whose bed you sleep, mm. and yet you feel you can insult him with impunity. The fact that Wallace hasn't allowed um, Scott to completely and utterly curb his love life is actually testament to Wallace's it's quite determination. It's actually, yeah. 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 You're like, also, okay, fine, you're sleeping in my bed, but guess what? <laughs> <laughs> also, it, it says a lot that, that Scott is attributing someone else with gaying up a room where he habitually sleeps with another man. Yeah. 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 He's, he's complicit in this. Also, it's not a gay apartment. Looking at no. it, it, like it's a bomb shelter. Well, no, that place is... could do with some gaying up, if that's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> if that just right. means tidy the fuck up a bit, mm. put some nice colours in there. Indeed, but yeah, I, I, and a table. I think that's that's another thing about <laughs> gay people um, love tables. The portrayal of Wallace is not as it's not stereotypical, whereas some of the characters are. You were pointing out before we started that every girl in this is either dating Scott, has dated Scott, or is his sister. Well, it was just the, the list, <laughs> the, the Wikipedia uh, list of characters, and I looked down it, and every female character, it said 
Scott, an ex-girlfriend of Scott's or a girlfriend of Scott's. I think the exception was Julie. Mm-hmm. I thought Julie, it said from she's the Scott's ex-girlfriend, it, but it actually said she's Stephen's ex-girlfriend. Yeah, she uh, had a crush on Scott at uh, high school, apparently, and mm. um, uh, he never dated her, which is possibly why she hates him. But Julie seems to hate everyone. Mm. Yeah. I think that was a... I'm not sure if that was something that they added for the film in the comics. That's someone called Lisa. It's a different thing. But I don't know. Maybe they added that to Julie, uh, Julie's backstory in the film. They may have folded a bit of Lisa into Julie. Yeah, she does mention uh, Lisa, I think, as, as being yeah. a relationship that Scott had that went badly wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Would would Lisa have been after Kim? I'm, I don't have my Scott Pilgrim flow chart with me. Uh, there, nothing happened with him and Lisa in the comics. So it, she just had a thing for him and got quite jealous, even though she was also friends with Kim. It's, again, very high school drama. See that again. Not just the fact that all the female characters seem to have been girlfriends or ex-girlfriends of Scott, but the fact that though even those who didn't had a thing for him once upon a time. What is it with this guy? Does he have beer flavored nipples? nipples or something? <laughs> <laughs> Chicks love beer. <laughs> so that's Lisa, Julie, Kim, Knives, Ramona, Envy, Six, Girls. Who had a thing for him? Yeah, but so, who can say no to Michael Sarah? Uh, everybody. He's many, many people. <laughs> he is so much fun in Arrested Development, and um, I, I really like him in uh, Juno. So really, it depends on who he's got behind him, and, and what character he's playing. Because I like him in Arrested Development because he wants to do good things, but he's wrestling with his bad side. And uh, in, I like him in Juno because he's just basically a decent guy through and through who gets undervalued by the people around him. I see that bleaker kid again, and I punch him right in the wiener. Um, <clears throat> okay, so the <laughs> the the uh, sc- uh, the poster for Let's Hope There's a Heaven, starring Lucas Lee. Um, the the subtitle is the the quote for it is "Kiss Me, I'm Dying." So basically, he's in a Nicholas Sparks movie. No, 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 the best one is definitely Action Doctor. Do you have the tagline for that one to hand? What's that one, Action Doctor? Oh, it's beautiful. The good news is you're going to live. The bad news is he's going to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Excellent. I think... I think I could probably have, have stood an entire film about Lucas Lee, uh, although it would probably be called Lego Batman, because it, it, it I hadn't we hadn't seen um, the Le- Chris Evans, yes please, the Lego Movie when we uh, uh, when we originally saw Scott Pilgrim, and then we hadn't seen Lego Batman when we last saw Scott Pilgrim. But basically, the the way it's set up, and especially in the comic, he and um, Lucas Lee don't have that fight. They, uh, uh, he throws Lucas throws him into the castle from the um, in in the film, but he doesn't have that hilarious fight with the uh, um, with the stunt doubles, who were all Chris Evans' stunt doubles, by the way. Really? Yep. That's spectacular. So yeah, all of that stuff with the skateboards uh, doesn't happen, and then the, the the massive like you know rushing towards each other and punching doesn't happen. They you know he, he tosses him, and then they chat for a bit. And then um, they, you know, they get up to have a fight, and uh, Scott challenges him to do that thingy on the rail. It's called a grind, and um, and then he explodes into a shower coins. But he also uh, uh, leaves behind a mithril skateboard, 
and Scott realizes that he could have studied skateboarding before, but he doesn't have that skill, so it's it doesn't bind to him, and he can't have it, which is nice. Mm, nice touch. Ooh, what's that? Scott doesn't get something he wanted. <laughs> mm, maybe they should have included that. Uh, but yeah, no, the, the whole like the Lucas Lee thing is is. Uh, I don't think there's any one particular action hero that he's based on, or um, but the, he's kind of a a, a a gestalt entity of arrogant pricks. I do know that the lead singer of the Hives, I believe it is, or it could have been the Vines. One of the two, they're about the same, because that was what the music scene was like back in those days. When uh, Brian Lee O'Malley went backstage, he was like, "I'm a huge fan." He said, "Why wouldn't you be?" And uh, Brian Lee O'Malley was like, "Notebook." Why wouldn't you be? I'm using that one. <laughs> you just immortalised yourself. Well done. <laughs> the X's, uh, when you're watching it the next time, folks, I mean, big fans will already know about this, but uh, just watch out for like the numbers associated with the X's. The uh, uh, Originally, Patel, who uh, is extremely entertaining, by the way, his little sort of dance moves. He's, he originally had a bunch of chevrons on his arm. They cut that down to a simple one chevron because he is number one. He points at Scott Pilgrim with one finger. Lucas Lee points at him with two fingers. He's got a two tattooed on his neck. Uh, there's a two on his car. And uh, I believe he has two X's on his belt as well. Okay. Todd has a great big three right on his um, chest. Gideon Graves' logo is a bunch of sevens flipped on their sides to make G's. Uh, Roxy has four, precisely four rips in her left stocking. When he uh, meets Roxy, he is walking under four X's. They have that brief, embarrassing altercation, and then does that sort of ninja vanishing powder. I think Roxy's probably my favourite of the uh, evil X's, possibly just because I really, really love um, Mae Whitman. Oh, because I've you know got to know um, her voice and her you know personality conveyed through Katara over um, you know multiple seasons of uh, Avatar, and the the idea that she's not you know, conventionally beautiful enough to get into premiere starring roles that Jennifer Lawrence gets every single time. Um, like bugs me. Kitara, whom she should blatantly have been cast Oh, as. yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that wouldn't have exactly assuaged the whitewashing controversy, though, would it? No. No. It no, wouldn't. It wouldn't. No. That's true. And uh, there would, um, I'm assuming there are a couple of Inuit, uh, young Inuit actors who are also extremely funny and would have been great in those roles. But uh, it would appear that the uh, characters that they asked... So the actors that they asked to come in, they were like, are you funny? No, not at all. <laughs> well, then, good. Yeah, we're looking for totally Dower. Isn't. Can you do Dower? Miserable. So, we're also looking for Confused. <laughs> so, um, are you the Avatar? Uh, anyway, yeah, so Roxy and her little, uh, her, her bi-furious fight. I think of the seven evil exes, I probably wouldn't call Roxy evil. She's, uh, like, her evilness rating on the cards that I have uh, is uh, slightly <laughs> higher <laughs> than um, Lucas Lee, who's only at a six for evil, and she's at a seven. Mm. Um, but it just seems like Roxy was hurt mm. more than any of the others, that... that Roxy genuinely fell for Ramona and then was hurt when uh, she was rejected as a phase. Yeah, I mean, Alex, you might be able to, um, to just clarify this one, because I believe this fight's set up differently in the book, isn't it? Other Alex. Uh, yeah, pretty significantly. Uh, for a start, the fight is mostly, if I remember correctly, uh, Knives' dad fighting her. And then mm. um, the back of the knee thing, that actually is Envy's weakness in the uh, in the comics. 
So because yeah, Ramona's it, fight with the hammer is with envy, isn't it? Not with yes. Um, yeah. Not with Roxy. And this is see, this is something that um, that I said while we were watching some of the extras, and it, it mentioned. So that's the anima fighting the shadow. Yeah, exactly. Which is what the anima is supposed to do, and and what the animus is supposed to do is fight the shadow yeah. as well. So the, um, in this film, the anima and the shadow sat in the same room as each other and scowled. And scowled. Yeah. There you go. Close enough. Um, but um, but the idea that uh, Ramona gives Scott the secret magic here's how you make her instantly orgasm and explode thing um that i i just that was really ugh didn't like that at all it is it is striking Explain. that the only female evil ex is disposed of in a very sexualized way exactly mm-hmm. exactly and and the fact that he did it now two things that i would have been found much more acceptable specifically a very anime style way of dispatching a girl yeah um not specifically the um the, the actual the the making her just just the basic ah! and then she's done mm. if ramona had done that that i would have been fine with that that would have felt like more consistent and not creepy and weird is the phrase i'm looking for it's creepy and weird okay that's i just i found that little bit creepy and weird um if scott had done it to envy then that would have been more consistent with the fact that she's his ex and this i think is ramona his, does it to envy in the comics oh i see so he does he tell her then yeah to, right okay i've got you hmm. okay i don't know how i feel about that but then. envy doesn't die clearly no 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 it's it's just like immobilizing which is yeah, how that works Whereas their decision here was that uh, they can't not have been influenced by a medium in which young girls are raped by tentacles, scream and explode. That literally happens in a couple of animes and still does. Like it happened back in the day because they were like, oh, a penis, can't show that. Show a, a giant tentacle then, that's all right. Yeah, get past the sensors that way. And it's still fucking happening. And... In this, she is touched sexually, screams and explodes and dies. I mean, it's it's less horrible and violent, but she doesn't come back, and she is in effect dead. Um, so yeah, that's going to bug me now too a lot more. It didn't before, now it does. I was like, well, at least he didn't violently kill her. But now that I think about that parallel, yeah, yeah, she's not she's not faced on the same terms as the men are in a way that's very striking to me. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, indeed. Would you say it was patronising? I mean, it's just just a bit creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it really needs that much further analysis. Also, you had a sexy phase. Are you implying she is not sexy now? Oh, that is true. Where, where are you going with that, Scott? Exactly. It's like something out of Blind Date. Mm. She's had her sexy, sexy phase. phase. And but she's all right now. Yeah. What? <laughs> and also, like, it, it's a bit... There is the... It, it gets into, like, fetishization territory that's in a way that's a bit, like, uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yes. And also that, um, despite the fact that her fight against Ramona is titanic, and actually Ramona really should have taken her out, um, Scott being limply puppeteered by Ramona is still enough to match Roxy at her angriest. Mm. So that doesn't say much about the uh, the, the whole match matchup of fighting a girl. Like if 
Like if Scott hadn't had a problem with hitting girls, then uh, he'd just have completely decked her the way that Knives gets decked by uh, uh, Todd, the way that um, Ramona gets decked by uh, Graves at the end. I mean, I will say that at the very least, that fight does uh, manage to come up with a much more concise way of dealing with the like this real theme of emasculation that kind of goes throughout that uh, mini arc in the comics. Like in in the comic. Uh, Scott literally climbs into Ramona's bottomless handbag in order to escape her. So it, it's interesting to see, I guess, a version of that where he's like being limp, like limply, like pushed around by the girl in order to fight correctly. Stop it! <laughs> sometimes a building is just a building, but sometimes a bag is more than a bag. Anyway. So yeah, now Roxy's not my favourite evil ex. <laughs> the handling of Roxy is uh, is not my favourite. Mm. That, that fucking sucks. She is great though. Overanalyzed that until we hated it. No, no, no. I, I, I still like her as a character. I think she's she's great, and I love the fact that she's in the movie. And Mae Whitman's awesome. I, I just I'm not wildly keen about the way it ramps off. Would have been nice if she and came back fight. at the end I like and the helped. Fight between to her and Ramona. Kick the ass off of uh, Graves. Mm. Yeah. Although, I the one that the the redeeming slightly feature of uh, Graves punching uh, Ramona down the um, at, uh, the stairs and kicking her in the ribs, uh, is that then he's faced by a, a, ma- a male and a female. So it, rather than just like, you know, if it was just Scott saying, you can't kick my woman down the stairs, that's a biscuit away from um, the girl at the beginning of Double Dragon getting punched in the gut and taken away. And that's your motivation. Go and save her, Billy and Jimmy. Um, at least Knives and Scott form some level of balance there. Mm. Your kidnap victim is in another castle. Mm-hmm. Although it does kind of suck that Ramona doesn't get to uh, have any part in finishing him off. She does in the comic, and so that that's yeah. that's a little something that also doesn't sit right with me. She has the most involved with just this completely laying this man to rest. She should be the one to take him out. Absolutely. Do you know who does not ultimately defeat scary ex-boyfriends that sit in your head and make your life miserable current boyfriends and ex-girlfriends of your current boyfriend (laughs) yeah though it was really nice seeing all three of them together as a kind of a just a a unit of friends that they they did moot the idea that maybe scott gets no one that maybe they all just hang out together and decide that the whole romance side of things can just be put on hold for a little while just for a bit of stability that would have been fine too. You know, the the idea that Scott's learned the true meaning of friendship. <laughs> and actually, technically, that would mean that Ramona had learned the true meaning of friendship, that she can keep somebody close, but at enough of a distance that she doesn't have to give that much of herself to them. Yeah. You can yeah. bring them the blanket off your bed. You don't have to bring them into the bed where the blanket is. Mm. Um, Although you can if you want. It is absolutely right that this was filmed in Canada. Apparently there were rumblings about, you know, maybe we'll film this in New York. And that seems to me like a guy saying to his uh, girlfriend, I don't know, maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll break up, maybe I'll go and start dating Brie Larson. It's <laughs> at least, like, scale it down a bit. You, you, you go from Toronto and you start filming in... You, Dude, like, you can't it? afford New you York. You make Toronto look like New York, <laughs> eh, Chris Evans? Fantastic Four. 
Isn't yeah. it much more expensive to shoot in New York anyway? It is yes. so much more expensive. Now, my theory on this is that if you look at the actual uh, budget on this, it was 85 to 90 million. And then it says 60 million after tax breaks. Canada gives tax breaks for filming. Canada gives tax breaks. New Canada probably gives knowledge. slightly more generous tax breaks if you go, I don't know, we're thinking about going and uh, doing it in New York. So, <laughs> and then they're doing the bunts symbol. And Canada coughs up thirty million dollars worth of tax re- rebate, and uh, but like I said, there's a know, lot of loonies and toonies. Yeah, that's you know Canada should have gone. Sure, go to Brie Larson. I'm sure you'll be very happy. <laughs> <laughs> but also, like, it is awesome that they could use all of the original uh, photo references as actual th- locations that they shot. Absolutely. It, it is out of the question that you would then go somewhere else. If you've got the stuff right there, if it's very much autobiographical on Brian Lee O'Malley's part, you want to be able to film at the castle. You want to be able to film at pizza, just walking past and talking about pizza, pizza, and make it feel very much like the book. What I'm baffled about is how if you read the first book, it's just, it's, some of the stuff is word for word, shot for shot. I don't get why so many fans of the books complain so bitterly about what this wasn't. This is not like The Last Airbender, where nothing was the same. Although, or having, World War Z, where literally nothing was the same. Yeah, although having seen how the book ending plays out, if I had read it and was a fan of that and then saw the film, I'd probably be pretty pissed off too. But you'd specify the ending sucked. Yeah. You wouldn't say the whole film was completely different. No. I will actually oh, say that, yeah. to my mind, uh, past like volume one, there is a lot that gets left out that is the slightly more spacious stuff that takes everyone's lives beyond the relationships that they have and takes it mm. far more into the realm of the way that they live and their broader struggles and the things that they're trying to come to terms with in a way that ultimately uh, allows for much richer character development. The kind of mm. micro-focus on just the relationships is very understandable, but it is a real loss. And there's... Mm. In general, there's a much less... Weirdly, in the comic, there's a much less cartoony tone and everyone's a bit more self-aware. Everyone has a bit more richness to them. They're less exaggerated. And so I can definitely see the stuff that gets lost. And I do think that the film absolutely goes off the rails once they did run out of currently published comics. But then your argument there ceases to be they did a bad adaptation from book to film and why did they do it as a film when they should have done it as a TV series? Because that's the only way that you're going to get that extensive depth um, and being able to get that wide focus that you can't get in a movie. It's already long as it is and they've just hacked huge chunks out of the middle end of the uh, the last couple of books. I would honestly say they probably should have done a more brutal adaptation. I, I think that stripping some of the absolute one-to-one verisimilitude would have you know allowed them to put in more stuff to actually make for for start a coherent character arc for scott but also the rest of that stuff i think that they went for adapting the most attention grabbing stuff and i'm not sure that that was like a the best choice because i think it lost a lot of the humanity that a lot of the stuff in the comic has 
Hmm. I, it would have actually also been uh, uh, well realised in animated form. That Scott versus Scott Pilgrim versus the animation thing looks exactly right, and with the with the cast obviously feels exactly right, um, and that would actually allow you to do shot for shot, frame for frame, word for word, and give it a bit of uh, like nuance, and also keep Brian Lee O'Malley closely involved for the production of it. But cart at <clears throat> Animated shows for adults, unless they're Family Guy, it's 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 a tough sell. They'd have to be on Adult Swim. Certainly, and it it would not have gotten anyone watching it who wasn't already a Scott Pilgrim fan. I don't think. Yeah. If I if I could swap all of Drawn Together for all of Scott Pilgrim, I would do that. <laughs> like that, straight away. That's true. It, who it, can we make that deal with? I'm in. Just. <laughs> Just go back in time and say to the people making Drawn Together, sod that, do Scott Pilgrim instead. There is still a possibility of uh, like maybe a Netflix series, but like animated, I mean, they did Voltron, so it's feasible. Mm. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, like uh, Jack Sam- Samurai Jack came back. So. Um, and I think there's enough demand there from the fans to at least convince some people Maybe it's worth putting money into this. Like the, the best thing about Netflix is that they doesn't—they don't have to have that same level of return. They don't have to have that same, uh, you know, amount of you need to make this much money back for us. Mm. Because be once they've got it, they know, bank it. I'd be interested to know what their metric is, though, because like if somebody's paying seven fifty a month for Netflix, how do they work out what percentage of that is going on the ridiculous six? Well, I assume that there's a uh, there's little metric counters that see how long you watch each thing for. Mm. Like, okay. you know, when you click on um, the core and you watch the first three minutes ago, this is shit, and turn it off, mm-hmm. that will only give you a tiny percentage of people or who have seen the core all the way through. The core and, and watch it for three seconds because they cheated and put it on the front screen, so you hit play accidentally yeah. when it, what you actually meant to do was go to Damn, I wound up in the watch core. list. <laughs> Okay, we're now at two hours, 12 minutes. We've got to rush through the uh, the rest. Rather like Scott Pilgrim. Ooh, snap. <laughs> um, okay, we haven't talked about it yet, but Envy. And specifically, Brie Larson and that performance of Black Sheep. Oh, my Lord. Jesus Christ. Uh, right, okay, I, I'm... Full disclosure at this point, I am I am starting to adore Brie Larson with mm-hmm. a, a fervor that is bordering on worrying. Pa- just madness. Um, I just I until Captain Marvel comes out, I am just going to be watching anything with Brie Larson in it on a loop. Just the room. So over hurry and over up again. with Captain Marvel. So oh hi, Brie Larson! That. Can't wait. Really, really, so really good. looking forward to it. Emily yeah. from Metric must be so mad at that performance because Brie yeah. Larson kills it. Basically, it's a it's a cover version of a song by uh, Metric. Uh, Beck did the music for the uh, sec- for Sex Bomb, and uh, um, yeah, Broke, Metric social scene riffle with uh, yeah. Crash and the Boys, right? That's right. Yeah, I and, actually uh, like Crash the Boys songs the best, but that's a so sad. So great. I actually, I I've had uh, these whatever song is it, whatever the song's usually called. They call it "We Hate You, Please Die" in this film. Yeah. I've had that song stuck in my head for the last two days. <laughs> Similarly, Sharon had uh, Black Sheep stuck in her head, and she needed to hear the whole thing rather than just the first verse. All night, yep. that was playing in my head. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's I was a very grateful. It's a fantastic it performance. I think she kind of reminded me a bit of Goldfrap 
who was big mm. at the time. I can definitely yeah. see that. I'd imagine that was a point of reference. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but uh, yeah, b- she she is a singer though, isn't she? She's had three last. She, I think oh, yeah, she started that herself. Yeah, yeah, mm. started as a singer. Yeah, and uh, then graduated. Uh, like she's going to have an amazing career. I think she already has, but just like she has got that raw talent going on. Mm. Uh, but the way she plays Envy is this kind of femme fatale the whole way through. But there's a little bit of vulnerability in there. Uh, one of my again, one of my favourite characters. This is why it being a TV show would be better, because you could just sort of expand on these guys, just give them a bit of dimensionality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, we're assuming that this isn't a reality where a TV show could afford Brie Larson, right? Yeah. Good point. Good point. <laughs> but I mean, if it's uh, like just Brie Larson coming in to deliver the Envy lines in a recording booth wearing a sweatshirt, she'd be That's fine true. with that, I think. You know. Yeah, just literally on the phone between takes or something else. Yeah. A reality we got Brie a... to Skype her lines in. <laughs> a reality where a TV show could afford Brie Larson, Chris Evans. Yeah, you'd have real difficulty now. <laughs> They'd have to get a different cast, I think. Frankly, even Michael Cera would probably cost a bit more yeah. these days. Uh, Anna Kendrick, you know, she's, uh, oh, she's got to make yeah. huge films after that. I really liked her as Stacey. It's a tiny mm. role, but I thought she was great. She was really thrilled with the fact that the real-life Stacey, which is Brian Lee O'Malley's sister Stacey, um, turned up and gave her her badge that said Stacey for to work in the coffee shop that she had originally worked at. So it was just this kind of weird, I'm stealing your whole life thing. I also think even Aubrey Plaza's probably a bit rich for TV these days, right? Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, she's, well, doing, I, uh, she's doing that uh, she's Legion doing show, right? She's doing very bad films. Yeah. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm getting weird, like, I'm, associ- I'm disassociating her with brilliant stuff like Parks and Rec now because I've seen Bad Dirty Grandpa. I and I fucking hated it so that. much. Don't see it, folks. It will spoil Orbi Plaza for you, folks. It's not worth it. And Zac Efron and Robert De Niro. Oh God, it'll yeah. Just everything it touches turned to it'll shit. It'll spoil old people mm-hmm. and young people. Everything's turned from gold yeah. into shit. Yeah, it depicts the sun and trees, and in doing so, ruins both. Yeah. Uh, what did you think when you first saw Todd doing his um, like superhero thing, Sharon? She's smiling and putting her head in her hands. What did you think? Okay. Just say, it's fun. <laughs> Vegan Vegeta. So, Todd makes his appearance and I'm watching him do the whole sort of, you know vegan glow defeating mm-hmm. Todd, uh, Scott thing and um, and a thought popped into my head oh, this guy would have made a really good Superman <laughs> yeah clang he even looks a bit like Superman clang <laughs> and the and fact then... that he gets spelled by the green rays as I well went... is kind of perfect ah <laughs> looking at Man of Steel we, we needed a Superman Returns again mm. just not with Brian Singer attached I actually think Todd would have been a better character if he hadn't punched knives straight in the face because that's such a strong flavour. Again, it's in like tossing in vindaloo sauce. Of course he doesn't. It's uh, the bait is the drummer. Yeah, with her bionic has, arm. With her bionic uh, uh, like death strike looking arm, um, she uh, yeah punches out uh, poor knives. But doing that, it's so strong. It's so objectionable. It gives Todd a good. It gives Scott a good reason to fight Todd. But it's just like God. Damn it. I found it made the tone of the entire scene a little too dark. I, it, it like it took too much of the levity out, and I thought that made the they punched the highlights out of her hair thing just a it, it it meant it didn't really land for me. 
Yeah. yeah. It's uh, that that is a great visual joke. But again, it's it's also tied in with the fact that uh, and I mentioned this on the uh, Ghost in the Shell uh, movie a day review. So many Asian girl characters have blue or red streaks in their hair. It's red in the comic. It's, it, obviously, it was in black and white, but she refers to it as red. Uh, but it's blue here to kind of match um, the way that uh, Ramona's got her hair blue. Um, but like, the, the whole Asian girl rebelling against oppressive masculine society puts a blue streak in her hair. There's this I attached a, a grid of like 16 different Asian females with that blue streak in their hair. Scarlett Johansson in Ghost in the Shell is not Asian. She still has blue blue tips to her hair, which were not present on the original character. And they don't get that that's a problem. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the whole like punching the highlights out of her hair is... Uh, it's in fact possible that... Knives doing that kind of started a thing. Like, because a lot of the other things on this grid uh, have, have come since Knives in the original 2004 book. Um, it was actually the second one, dyeing her hair. So maybe that became a, like, sort of, it, it, it worked its way into the zeitgeist. Yeah? Now he's doing $300 Scrabble words. <laughs> but. Yeah, the, the whole the the, the fight is uh, allayed neatly with the whole vegan police thing, which is great, and the fact that Thomas Jane is one of them is also great. That is very great. I like that. Just Punisher versus Superman, <laughs> with Captain Marvel watching and with finger guns. That's one of the touches I love the most. That their guns are just their fingers making gun hands. And actually, since I know uh, of, uh, I have a vegan friend who uh, is the kind of vegan that isn't just going to be quiet about being vegan. <laughs> and she, uh, she's uh, very much kind of, oh, no, it's fine. You just want to murder a chicken in front of me. I was like, no, no, just, mm, I'm just eating a chicken burger. <laughs> I just want to be left alone. I do love her. She's great. But uh, she might not be like that anymore. I haven't, uh, I haven't been chastised by her for eating sausages for a while. So, But, uh, but yeah, I think uh, in 2004 there was a big vegan craze, maybe. It was. Or maybe a, it was like a, the whole like being vegan means I'm better than you thing was a thing in uh, like the hipstery scene back then. Nowadays, like all the vegans I know are fairly chill and like around that age and in that kind of scene, and they're they're fine. Possibly because the vegans of the early 2000s died of malnourishment <laughs> or weakened and became just vegetarians. And if you have somehow managed to remain vegan all the way from then till now. You get the green badge of pride. <laughs> it might be a Starbucks thing, actually. The whole having soy milk in your coffee and mm. all the options with soy that they do. There's a coffee shop um, in our city where they have a, a sign on the blackboard behind the counter that basically says, we don't do soy, we don't do skimmed, you have milk in it or you have it black. That's how it comes. <laughs> uh, you see, it's that kind of like aggressive barista attitude that is tr truly hipster. <laughs> also, um, uh, the calling the band The Clash at Demon Head was really confusing when I first saw it because I thought they were referring to a time that the very well-known British new wave band The Clash played at a festival called Demon Head. And they were like, I'm just listening to The Clash at Demon Head. Like The Who at Leeds 
or Marilyn Manson at Milton Keynes, or Bjork at Burning Man, or Metallica at Basingstoke. Like, you almost couldn't call yourself The Clash at Demon Head uh, if you were a band. I mean, I suppose you could, but it would like be calling yourself Madness Plus or The Specials at Demon Head. <laughs> is, it, is it a reference to... No, it's a NES game. Oh. I've already said. Okay. Yes, you did. It's You're an obscure right. NES game that um, Brian Lee O'Malley probably got bought for Christmas accidentally by a well-meaning relative. And because back in the day you had to just play the shit out of your games, played the shit out of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he, he loves it. So that's okay. like, he's the only person who remembers it. So it's nothing to do with the demon heads on Guitar Hero? No. No, 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 no. Okay. In fact, if anything, uh, Brian O'Malley didn't like Rock Band. He he actually said in an interview that he didn't like Rock Band at all. He didn't get the point of it. And, you know, obviously he's he was in a band. Uh, and um, Harmonix found out about this and sent him a Rock Band set in revenge. <laughs> and then he played it and went, ah, actually, it's really good. That's why Scott wears that bassist logo Rock Band t-shirt. Mm, yeah. Um, I like that, that's cute. But I, I do understand people who are in bands saying they don't get the point of rock band. It's like people who are professional sports people saying, I don't get we fit. Yeah, or people who are professional um, athletic archaeologists saying, I don't get Tomb Raider. <laughs> <laughs> Why would anyone want to climb a cliff when you could do it in real life? <laughs> yeah, someone comes over and plays Tomb Raider and they're like, God, I should have left this at the office. <laughs> <laughs> The Katianagas, like, like I said, that's a really rushed through bit. And um, I mean, like Brian Lee O'Malley even said like he, he made them twins just so he could get like that. It was kind of a, a twofer for him. Yeah. Um, but from the sounds of it, they were, there was much more sort of vibrant rock, uh, robot stuff. Do they actually add, like, do they bring anything out of Scott in that episode which like forces him to confront something is that the one where um ramona disappears at the end uh yes but actually most of that is about him uh dealing with a lot of his baggage with kim and a lot of ramona's uh like he and ramona's relationship with kim uh so it's it's kind of the beginning of what ends up happening uh later on in volume six where they kind of uh reconcile and finally, I think we, like, we, we've talked about Gideon over and over again, but I will say Jason Schwartzman is great fun as Gideon. I mean, there, there was a danger when he was playing him originally that he would actually end up being a bit too nice, so they had to really nasty him up. So I think probably just kicking Ramona down the stairs just, just to hammer that one home. He's yeah. mean, folks. Although he did feel a bit to me like um, this is what happens when Max Fisher goes bad. Yeah. <laughs> The only other detail that I noticed was that uh, Bill Hader, um, the uh, he of fear in uh, uh, Inside Out, um, and one of those cops in Superbad, uh, did all of the announcer voices. So he was all the Scott Pilgrim wins type stuff. It, th- there was actually a bit in spaced when uh, uh, they kind of um, parallel a fight between Daisy and Tim uh, with a game of Tekken. So it's something that's bit clearly been on, on Edgar Wright's mind for a long time. Remember when Tekken was just the absolute shit and everyone thought that Street Fighter was kind of over? That seems like a yeah. weird moment to look back on in retrospect. Everyone was like, Namco are just making the best fighters right now. Yeah. I, I, I think I hit... Um, see, Tekken 3 was my... Like, this period in my life was punctuated by Tekken 3. So it was when I was at college, before Sharon um, 
found me, brushed my hair, gave me a breath mint, smartened me up. Um, uh, and I was just basically hanging out with uh, guys. I look, I I look at video footage and photos of myself at that age, and I want to go back and throttle myself a bit. So I I fully understand that's probably what Scott Pilgrim was. Yeah, it's, it seems like I'm beginning to th- see where this guy rubbed you so much the wrong way. But even then, I did not play fast and loose with people's hearts. I leveled. I was I was not scared of of confronting. Um, you know, more than one person who liked me at the time. I, you know, yeah, no, sure. Yeah, you were never um, the kind of person that would avoid issues and not deal with them. Hmm. That you tended to get quite frustrated with me, and rightfully so, for being the kind of person who was scared of confronting ah, issues. Now it comes out. <laughs> That's why Scott Pilgrim pisses me off. <laughs> the inability to just get it done. Okay. Uh, any any more on Scott Pilgrim? Because I think we're done now. We're at two and a half hours. That is more than enough pilgriming. Pilgrimage. Yeah, I, I think if we wanted to get into like our broader opinions of the film, I think that, for me, certainly, it, it's kind of a film of two parts that I kind of only really discovered watching it for this show. Which is, I actually think on a like technical filmmaking level, a lot of this is like essentially like wonderfully done. I I actually like every single performance in this film, including like incidental ones. Like everyone Scott talks to at a party, I think is great. I think for some reason, like Knives Chow's like exasperated friend in that one scene, I just think is brilliant. And so I think that the, you know, the set design is brilliant. I think the direction is great. I think that the editing is fantastic. I think that the script and the story and the characterization is where all the problems really sit for me. And it's at the point where, to give you an idea, when I saw this, uh, I was I was 18 when the film came out. And I'd been a fan of the comics for years. And I really liked the film then, when I was that young. But now I'm... 24 and already like looking back uh, like watching this I am really struck by to my mind uh, I think the reason why uh, Sharon you're particularly insistent on the idea that it's not Scott's story is the, the staging of the film makes me think that it was kind of supposed to be and they just couldn't come up with anything inco- like anything coherent or resonant for him like he produces the sword with the power of self-respect but I didn't really get any sense of why he respects himself more how that's manifesting in his desire to fight uh, Gideon at the end I I think that to me that's that's kind of left me with a much more mixed opinion of this film even bordering on like a negative one where for all the skill of its craft i feel like i'm seeing a broken engine at the at the core of this film that i never noticed before so that's something that really stood out to me uh watching this this time around i think that pretty much concludes it um i i suspect that Scott Pilgrim will remain what it is now, which is a uh, kind of a, 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 f- a more fondly remembered cult classic um, than at the time. What I don't understand is how it costs so much. $90 million? 
that's the that's a lot of money for. I mean, there are a lot. Yeah, I completely agree. There yeah, are a lot keeping of back on retainer. That's got to. <laughs> It feels like you know at this at its core, this is a bunch of kids of of these relatively known name actors at the time, engaged in romantic relationship troubles. That's the literal cheapest film you can make. I mean, aside from a zombie film, yeah, strip all which Edgar Wright has somehow managed as well. <laughs> Sorry, say again. Yeah, other Alex? strip all this stuff out, and it could just be mumblecore if you got rid of the video yeah. game stuff. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, it looks fantastic when they are actually doing the action. So I can, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying why didn't they shave this down and make it look less good. But if they had gotten it, it ended up making 47 million out of 60 million after tax rebates. And um, as far as I'm aware, they made the rest back on home video. So I guess it's good, yeah. it has found that kind of cult hit classic. But mm. I think the most alarming thing to me is the idea that it would supersede the comics, because I think mm. the comics have a real strength to them uh, still to this day. Like in addition to rewatching the film, I reread all the comics today. And to me, they hit much more effectively and still have a lot that I yeah, I see in the way like me and my friends interact, and in the way that like some of us would see the world, and in things that I see kind of reproduce that feels very authentic, and in a way that I think gives it much more value than the film. I fired up the game for the first time in years uh, today, and found that my new favorite character of Knives Chow was available as a playable character, but since this has now been taken down from Xbox Live. It means you can't buy it anymore, so that meant I couldn't recover it in the usual way from the Xbox Live Store. I had to go back into my purchased content and then just scroll down a list four at a time across 2,000 pieces of purchased content over 12 years now to find that one instance where I, d I bought the Scott Pilgrim game sometime back in 2010. But even if you own it, you can't buy knives. You could also get Steven, but that means she's gone. That means unless you already have it and already bought Knives Chow, you can't ever play as Knives Chow in this game. And there's a lack of permanence, which is quite rare these days. Because so much gets archived. And, you know, you can watch it on YouTube. But certain games, you know, especially certain licensed arcade games, just disappear off into the ether because it's not economically viable to keep that license renewed. Well, thank you very much, uh, and thank you, other Alex, for, for coming on. It's been it's been great having you uh, help us steer ourselves back into um, something resembling uh, coherence. And um, thank you to Jason Ronson for sponsoring this. I don't know if this is what you wanted to hear, but yeah, I think we went about as thorough as we can, considering the level of actual texture in the film. Yeah. Okay, so which song should we? Ah, no, I got it. <laughs> Let's finish on Black Sheep, shall we? We Are Sex Bobom is probably going to be what we start with. And also, it's just the same thing over and over again. I see, like, once the actual fighting starts, 
The choreography is extremely good. It's it's very it's got great impact to it. This is why I was thinking, you know, that the uh, uh, this would be great for uh, an Avatar movie. Uh, sorry, a Last Airbender movie because it has that sense of oomph to the fights. That it's sense of dynamic. visual there's, flair there's and dynamism movement yeah. going on. Yeah. yeah, and specifically that it's not spe- it's not involving Asian martial artists or it's you know kids and stuntmen who've trained their asses off. Uh, and yeah, it's the rare yeah, Canadian it's... martial artist. Yeah, the rare Canadian martial artist. He has seen scurrying to his burrow at midnight. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we will be back next week with Transmetropolitan, which is a dystopian sci-fi uh, comic book series of graphic novels. This, these ones I have read all the way through to the end. It was one of the formative graphic novels of my twenties. Uh, uh, it shaped the way I write, and yeah, really looking forward to sharing it with you guys. It's another commissioned show, and it, but it's so daunting that I probably never would have just undertaken to just do Transmetropolitan. But with the fact that we got it commissioned, we're like, right, we will do the first two books. So if you guys want to catch up, uh, read, maybe read the first one, Back on the Street. It's always overpriced because it's only three issues back to back, and it's like seven ninety nine for that, which seems like a lot. Maybe read the second book instead of the first one, because like the first one gets Spider back from the mountain to where he needs to be. The second one is a series of think pieces. Yeah, so the second one's called Lust for Life. We'll be covering that. It is brutal. It is a retro futurism version of the future in that what Warren Ellis was thinking the future might be like has now diverged in a completely different direction but it's also a black mirror to society today and there's a lot very relevant about it especially the election okay so more political stuff next week (laughs) as we delve into the world of spider jerusalem Actually, you have two weeks to find and read the second transmetropolitan book, Lust for Life, by Warren Ellis, because next week we're doing Doctor Strange. I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's School's Out. out.
And this is Anna Managuchi, who genuinely used the sound chips from NES and Game Boy systems to make their music. And this is the first level from the Scott Pilgrim game. 